are you up to? Uh, I'm talking to you from my apartment on Bleecker Street in uh, New York City near uh, Bow- the Bowery. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those long days. I, I don't, you know, now I don't know if you're retired or what, but, <laughs> you know, those okay. of us who are still working for a living are, um, you know, I got up early and I'm going to be up late. Yeah. No, I'm not retired. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you were born in New York, right? I was. I was born in Brooklyn in 1963, but then I, uh, my parents moved when I was like three or four to uh, New Jersey, about 50 miles from Manhattan, and uh, that's where I uh, mostly grew up. But then I also, I, you know, I have family in New York, and I worked here after I graduated college uh, and before I went to grad school. Now, did they move because of work? Uh, yeah, kind of, uh, you know, this was in the late sixties. Uh, they moved in December 66 or January 67 and they were part of that big exodus out of the city. My, uh, my father had been born. He was a child of, uh, Irish immigrants. He was born in Hell's Kitchen in 1923. My mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants from water, uh, who was born in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is about an hour and a half north of here. And, uh, she, Married my father in 1950, and then they lived in Brooklyn. So do you feel more Irish or more Italian? Uh, it's a fair question. You know, it really varies. Um, and I think um, for a long time growing up, I identified more with the Irish side. I, I have always been told that I look more like my mother. I have kind of Italian uh, coloring. and yeah, uh, you've got like a very Mediterranean look. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is that my features actually are very much like my father. But what I was getting at, and, you know, this is kind of interesting to think about in your context, too, you know, kind of a Mediterranean thing. You know, growing up, uh, like everybody wanted to be Irish. Uh, You know, all white ethnics wanted to be Irish. Irish people were cool and sad and tragic, but good singers and good poets and haunted and um you know it was a very attractive kind of cultural identity uh but then over time you know i came to kind of embrace the uh the guido and i say that my mother's maiden name was guida so i you know i can i can make these kinds of comments but um and now i um you know i think of myself really it it kind of goes back and forth sometimes i joke that i'm a uh, double genetic loser uh, you know, or that I have like, you know, an Italian, an Italian brain and an Irish, you know, groin, um, you know, whatever the, whatever the splits are, it's, it, you know, it's just like, you know, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a mud. Uh, the other thing that's actually changed, and I don't know, uh, about you, but like, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of two sons who are in their twenties and, um, that changes the way I think about my ethnicity in, in a, I, you know, I think kind of an interesting way, but because they are, you know, so they're one quarter Italian, one quarter Irish, and then their mother uh, was kind of German and English and Welsh, actually, like a big Welsh uh, thing. And, um, you know, so like to them, I am something different than I am to myself. And, you know, but I think, yeah, I was just going to say, I think also... um, I probably think of myself more as like from New York and New Jersey than anything else um, because I've lived all over the country. And, you know, weirdly, uh, you know, New Jersey is kind of, is a joke, um, but people are afraid of people from New Jersey. Like they're like, you know, you are desperate enough to do anything. Like you, you, you don't have any scruples. You don't have any morals. And 
So there was a fair amount of, especially when I was living in Texas for a while, uh, there was a lot of cultural power being from New Jersey. Was there much conflict between Irish and Italians growing up? Was that no, a I mean, my parents really, uh, on a profound level, I mean, they both loved each other. They were Roman Catholic. No way they were going to get divorced. And they, you know, they were in it for life. But they also kind of hated each other. Um, they were very much like the Costanzas in Seinfeld. Um, you know, where like their, you know, their on off switch was, you know, like hello and then rage. Um, the one thing, you know, they would always, they would always gang up against the kids. I have an older brother and sister and they were a united front there. And, you know, they were very generous and, and good, but like their marriage was not great. And I, I don't think it was a function of, uh, ethnic, uh, rivalry, although, you know, like I said, they got married in 1950, and um, they both told stories about um, that my father's family, the Irish side, uh, his mother, his father had split, and then uh, I guess he died right around there, too. But um, but uh, my father's sisters were not uh, welcoming to my mother, partly because she was Italian. Hmm. Well, that, that does happen in some families. Yeah. It happens today, even, some families. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, there are, like, you know, I'm Palestinian and Syrian, and there mm-hmm. are still lots of families where they insist that the kids marry someone from that, you know, ethnic background. Yeah. And that's not, you know, that's not something that was a pressure on us or a pressure that what, is you know, your, put on What me. is your wife? Is she, she's, what's her background? She's uh, mostly English and um, Welsh and uh-huh. Irish. Yeah. Um, like a, a basic American mix. Do you guys uh, share the same religion, or because are you Orthodox? Yeah, I'm Orthodox. Orthodox? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, Orthodox Christian. That was yeah, the thing is... with my parents. If they were not both Catholic, I doubt it would have happened in 1950. Um, you know, but the fact that they were Catholic at a time where being Catholic was, you know, I, you know, there's there's no way that Irish or Italian people were treated as poorly as you know, blacks or um, or Asians at that time or or Latinos, but. Um, being Catholic was kind of a minority position and it kind of, it, it, you know, it made them have something in common against the larger society, which I think helped, uh, you know, make their uh, relationship work. Now, you, you went to Catholic school, right? Yeah. Yeah, I went to Catholic school from uh, grades 1 through 12. Uh, and I went to St. Mary's Elementary School in uh, New Monmouth, New Jersey, which is part of my hometown, Middletown, and, uh, and then Modern Day, uh, Mother of God High School. And did you have to wear like uniforms? Was that yeah. like uh, mm-hmm. yeah? Uh, which I <laughs> is that? Uh, did you wear a black uniform every day? Uh, yeah, I would have liked to. No, but you know, it was blue. Uh, there, you know, there's like four yeah. basic color patterns for uh, Catholic schools, and these were always blue. And you know, you would I would wear like a collar shirt, you know, white or blue, light blue, a blue sweater basically, and a tie, uh, and blue pants. Uh, we were able to get away wearing Levi corduroys, so that was kind of like the the thing. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I obviously don't, you know, I don't like coercion, I don't like mandates, that type of stuff. But one of the things that was really interesting was the, you know, having everybody, you know, the boys all dressed one way, the girls all dressed one way. And it really, I think it put a focus on your personality or your brains or your actions, because you couldn't, you couldn't really accessorize. Um, and in that way, it was it was a very positive thing because, you know, you didn't have to worry about what you were going to wear. And then, like, it was up to you to distinguish yourself by how you behaved rather than how you dressed. And it's 
it's kind of like you still wear a uniform. Am I, oh, yeah. am I wrong oh, about totally. that? Totally. Yeah. Is yeah. That, so like, yeah. What's the story behind that? Cause you, you, I think you always wear black. Am I right? I, yeah, uh, virtually, uh, you know, occasionally when I go to the gym, I'll wear uh, a couple of colors, but, uh, that is, you know, I'm a big fan of Andy Warhol, the, uh, you know, the artist and filmmaker and whatnot. And he had a uniform, uh, you know, people like Jackson Pollock, had a uniform khakis and a shirt. And um, when I became, I became editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine in 2000. And um, I was like, I, I want to have, you know, first off, I want to minimize, you know, the time I spend on things that aren't that important to me. And I want to have a look. And I had, at various points when I was younger, uh, during the 80s, I was living and working in New York, and I liked dressing in black. It was, you know, it was a big thing. I had um, some goth tendencies Although it wasn't as pronounced as it kind of became later, um, so yeah, I was like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm gonna, you know, I bought a leather jacket uh, in anticipation of uh, becoming editor. It was the first time I think I bought any article of clothing that was more than like two hundred dollars. And then I was like, okay, you know, I was also thinking about this from, you know, okay, so I want like something that is easy to do every day, something that is pretty good in almost any situation. Um, and that is vaguely libertarian or something. And like, I knew I wasn't going to, um, compete in terms of like wearing really good suits. Like, I don't care about that. And I didn't have the money. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to dress down because it's like I'm in action. You know, so I wear jeans, you know, boots and a t shirt, uh, you okay. know, and then a leather jacket. I'm trying to think if I've seen you in a suit anywhere. Do you wear suits or do you just wear like oh, yeah. that? You wear like a, oh, you do I, wear suits. Uh, well, I, no, I mean, generally I don't. I, I did to, uh, for instance, my sister's wedding. Um, I did to my parents' funerals. Um, so like when it calls for it, um, but you know, now the way the world is, I also, I have a Nehru jacket, uh, that is kind of velvet. That's quite nice. And I have a, I have a kind of a smoking jacket or a, you know, a tuxedo jacket that's quite natty. That's black. Um, but yeah, Jen, I, I can't remember the last time I wore a tie, for instance. Yeah. So even, even if you're wearing a suit, you're not wearing a tie. Generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, has it been like that since, I mean, since about 1999. Yeah. So, so it's a long it, time. Is now. it around the time you started at Reason? Uh, not when I started, but when I became editor, I was, I, I started at Reason in October of 93 and then, um, uh, you know, I, my uh, my boss was Virginia Postrell, who had been the editor for quite a long time. And um, she she and I talked about me succeeding her in, I think, 1998. And then, you know, we had a long lead time and she was going to leave at the beginning of 2000. So, you know, like around 1999, I think the transition was complete to, you know, and how, and how often is the leather jacket worn? Uh, you know, pretty much whenever I'm outside or whenever I, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's times when, you know, it gets hot and I don't wear it in the summer. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I had it on earlier today cause it was chilly in my apartment. Yeah. When you were, a, when you were a kid, were you, were you good in school? Uh, many, you, yeah. Like, there are a few people I know who know as much about, um, libertarian philosophy about mm. literature as you do yeah, yeah i've had conversations with you that are just amazing conversations and um, were you a good student 
Uh, you know, so this is interesting. Um, you know, I, I mean, I have a PhD, so it's like I was good at school and I liked it, you know, and I went, you know, basically as far as I could go, ultimately. Um, but when I was younger and this, my, my parents uh, died about, uh, you know, in the late 90s. Uh, so, you know, quite a while ago, almost 25 years ago, within pretty close to one another. And, and we they had lived in the same house for the last 30 years of their life. It's the only house that I knew growing up. And I had this sense that I was, you know, kind of really smart as a kid. Uh, and then when we were cleaning out the house, we got um, my sister and I went through, uh, you know, everything and we found our old report cards. And I was kind of stunned. I was in my mid 30s at the time. And I was actually I was not a very good student. I got bad grades. Uh, all of the comments were talks too much in class, doesn't pay attention, things like that. And I think what helped me uh, in grammar school was that uh, we did standardized tests all the time, and I always did very well in those. I was like in the 90th percentile. Um, and then at a certain point, I think I started behaving better. Um, and, you know, when I was in high school, I, you know, I did well. My high school was not particularly uh, academically challenging, but I was curious and inquisitive, and, um, you know, particularly in terms of things like history and literature, I've always, you know, I've always had a, a real affinity for that. And, um, so, you know, I was a pretty good student. And then what happened to me, I went to Rutgers as an undergrad. And um, my brother was the first, uh, who's four years older than me, was the first kid in our family uh, to go to college. My father didn't graduate high school. My mother barely did. And um, he, he got C's. He was a national merit finalist uh, as a, in high school. He was really smart. But he did pretty, you know, mediocre. Uh, he may be listening, I don't know, you know, uh, in, in college. And I had a chemistry teacher in high school who was like, you know, look, you know, you guys who are taking chemistry, you're in advanced classes, like, you think you're smart now, but every, when you go to college, everybody is in advanced classes. So, like, if you're an A student now, you're going to be a C student in college. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, that's pretty rough. And then my brother, like, I saw that happening, and he was like, you know, a, a boy genius and stuff. So I expected to get my ass kicked in college, and in fact, I did extremely well. Um, and I think it was because, you know, in college you're kind of set free to, um, you know, to actually learn things and to challenge yourself and to kind of do deep thinking. And a lot of the same types of questions I would ask in high school where they would be like, shut up, we got a lot to cover. In college, it was like, okay, let's talk about that. So, Yeah, we're... We've got a couple callers. Let me right. um, go. Let me go to one of them, and I, I actually have a question. So let me, um, let's um, bring on Kausha. Hello, uh, uh, it's pronounced Kusha. Kusha. Hey, I got one question for you guys. Is my mic quality okay? Are oh, it's guys... great. No, it sounds okay. good. Okay, just want to make sure because I got some messages that I that it, it was only so so, but. Um, if it's a problem, let me know. I can try to switch things up. So, uh, Kusha, what do you got for us? Definitely. Well, I just want to begin by thanking you for having me on your program. And I know uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you're of Syrian and Palestinian background. And yes, I just want to let right. you know that if you're ever in Long Beach, because um, I live in L.A. County in the near future, <laughs> there's an amazing restaurant called Amatoli, operated and managed by a Syrian-Palestinian chef named Dima Habibe. And I've had the pleasure of eating there twice, and the interior design, the pictures of her establishment are beautiful, and the wide plethora of hearty food is just so scrumptious. So if you're ever there, I highly recommend it. All right, that, that's actually useful information. I'm going to be in Long Beach at some point soon. So I uh, definitely 
that sounds great. dog friendly um, if you happen to have that in your lifestyle. <laughs> so um, I, I do have a dog, but I'm probably not taking the dog with me. But okay, no worries. <laughs> um, so I would just like to say that I really want to thank you for some uh, some of the stances that you've been very consistent in articulating for, particularly as it pertains to human rights. And something that comes to mind, one of the tweets that you put out, which I very much love, is what you said on uh, April 20th, 2021, a quote, restore justice to our justice system and qualified immunity and civil asset forfeiture and the drug war and victimless crime and overcriminalization and no-knock warrants and militarization of the police and mandatory minimums and the death penalty, end quote. And that was beautiful. I mean, it, I wish that there were so many more people who are, you know, democratic party associated and proxies and what have you who are as firm as you are on many of these stances when it comes to stop selling weapons to saudi arabia um for instance and when you rightfully rightfully condemn hamas for its atrocities child suicide bombings and sexual apartheid and so on but you also condemn israel the israeli government for its military occupation for its apartheid for its um settler colonialism and i really appreciate that from you because you're very consistent on it and you've taken a stance in separating from the republican party going uh libertarian independent in some ways and that's very commendable um so i want to give you that credit and then that being said justin i would really like oh is there a beverage being poured yeah that's uh oh, i think that's sorry quick, uh, i was away, forgetting that it's mike yeah still. yeah sorry about that I, I was getting some more water but <laughs> oh no worries no worries um how it works here on colin Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> that could so, have been worse. Ahead. Sure. So if go I ahead, may, yeah, thank you. There's a question I'd really like to ask you. I don't know if I've seen your take on it. Maybe you've spoken on it. But as um, as it relates to the nuclearization of the world and uh, the need to denuclearize, if I were to ascertain from what I've seen from you, I think you put it as a top priority. And um, this is, I believe, Supreme Court Justice William Orville Douglas once said this at a talk in UCLA. That is one of the biggest problems that he saw in the world that needs to be tackled. And I believe per an LA Times article I've seen uh, fairly recently, like a year or two ago, is that, quote, the number of U.S. nuclear weapons, including those on active status, as well as those in long-term storage, stood at 3,750 as of September 20th, 2020, the department said Tuesday. Uh, that is down from 3,805 a year earlier and 3,785 in 2018. Uh, end quote. This is in reference to the State Department uh, and its evaluation not too long ago. So what I want to know is, how would you approach not just the denuclearization or how you are approaching it, the denuclearization around the world, specifically in the U.S.'s role in doing so, and its allies such as Israel? How do you make that um, approach to Israel in its possession of tens or even hundreds of nuclear weapons, information that first came out in 1986, thanks to the courageous whistleblowing efforts of Israeli peace activist Mordecai Venunin? I'd really like to know your thoughts on that. Well, thanks for the question. First of all, thanks for the um, compliments and, and comments. Um, you know, I think it's very challenging. I, I don't know exactly how you handle that, because when a country has nuclear weapons, and I don't know that Israel has acknowledged it publicly, and, and some countries, are, I think, are ambiguous about it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think once a country has nuclear weapons, it's very difficult to to um, remove those nuclear weapons. It's, it's hard to remove a technology that someone's developed already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our, our greatest fear should be countries that are, are run by a, a despotic regimes, um, Iran, North Korea, countries like that that might get nuclear weapons, and North Korea has nuclear weapons, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because they don't have the same system of checks and balances that other countries have. There's no there's no checks at all. Um, when you've got just you know a few um, wild people at the top running the whole system, anything could happen. Um, so I think that's where you have to have more concern um, than countries and than countries with a democratic system or a more um, uh, divided a system of divided powers. Now, there's no guarantee, even in those countries, that uh, nuclear weapons will be safe, but it, that's probably as, as good as it's going to get. And I'm not sure how you um, denuclearize democratic countries that already have them. I'm not sure you can denuclearize North Korea, which already has them. So I, I don't know what the answer is to that, other than to set an example. And, um, and since... The world wars, you know, World War Two. Um, I, I think there's uh, there's a hesitation. There's obviously been no uh, military use of nuclear weapons since uh, World War Two. So, um, yeah, it's pretty I good, guess. actually. You know, um, and I, I, you know, I actually think it's one of the unacknowledged triumphs. Might not be the right word, but it's it's amazing. Also, since the collapse of the Soviet Union or the dissolution of that and a bunch of weapons falling into different types of hands, as well as a couple of other countries probably adding or, you know, being joined to the uh, nuclear club. You know, we're not, uh, it doesn't seem to carry the threat that it, um, that it used to, you know, even 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, if, if I may just give a little bit of pushback to Justin's answer. Um, one thing that I'm really curious about is, is it not the case that you think the United States should play a larger role in that, given that it's been the only country to use the nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. August 6th, 1945, I believe it was Hiroshima, and August 9th, 1945 was Nagasaki. And it was around 200,000 people, I believe, killed. Obviously, estimates, uh, estimates range, um, you know, some thousands here and there. But nonetheless, it's been used as a threat, even if they haven't been used. They've been used as a threat, I believe, by nearly every administration from Truman onwards. And I think the fact that the U.S. has been the sole perpetrator of it, and uh, there were people who survived both nuclear uh, bombings as well. There's a story of one man I read who was in work uh, at his workplace for one of them, and then he went back home during another. So don't you think that the U.S. should play a role uh, as a leader in that sense, as opposed to just hoping that like the, the super despotic ones, for instance, like North Korea or the Islamic Republic of Iran, just de-escalate? And as well, isn't there a, wasn't there a fear even that Trump was going to be irrational with it? Like, it's possible that even in the U.S. government or friends of the U.S. government, that there's people who come through, for instance, the established mechanisms of what is known as a liberal democracy that are um, very poor judges with the nuclear weapons altogether. Yeah. Uh, Kusha, I appreciate all this. We're going to have to move on to the next person, but... Sure. Um, I, I would say there's no perfect system. There's no way to completely uh, protect us from someone doing something wild. I think the best thing you can do is if you have a liberal democracy, uh, a system with checks and balances, separation of powers, um, like we have in the United States, you have at least um, some strong protections against someone using it in a rogue fashion. I don't think that there's any desire by anyone in the military establishment or 
um, in the executive branch to really use nuclear weapons. I, I don't think that's a desire. I think that's like the last thing anyone wants to do under any circumstance. So um, is that a perfect protection? Uh, it's not a perfect protection, but um, I don't think there's any great solution here. Hmm. So we'll, we'll go on to um, Patrick. Hmm? Sorry, Kusha. Yeah, just dropped you there. Go ahead, Patrick. I think he's muted. Patrick, you're ah, right. there you go. This ah. is my first time using Colin, so figured mm-hmm. it out. Um, first, Nick, I just wanted to say that I watched the interview with Schellenberger about climate issues, and I have less existential dread about it now. So thanks for that. Um, Justin, I wanted to say that a big fan of yours, I really like, um, you kind of went on that speaking tour talking about the problems within Congress. And, um, I feel like I would love to see you just amplify that because I think that's why a lot of people voted for Trump because, you know, everyone saw him as an outsider and that he was going to bring down the corrupt establishment, blah, 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 blah. But, um, I think a lot of people could get behind this idea of you actually talking about your experiences rather than just some blowhard like Trump yelling from the podium. Um, and my question is, I'm new to the whole libertarian thing. I used to be a progressive. Um, and my question would be, I've heard you say that you wanted to like, uh, basically like abolish the uh, education department, the federal education department or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know it's like 7% or something of funds for like state schools or whatever come from the federal government. Like, in your mind, would there be like a way to like supplement those funds or are those funds not needed as I'm sure that they're not spending it in the best ways? Basically my question. Well, all of the funds, thanks for your question. All of the funds come from taxpayers. So whether taxpayers pay that to their state government and it goes to education or they pay it into education themselves um, through some private system, it's all the same money. Um, so there are all sorts of configurations you can have. None of it means that you're going to um, have less money in the system. If anything, um, my view is that if you remove the federal government from the equation, you're going to have more money in the system. Because when you're sending the money to the federal government, when taxpayers say, here's some money for education, most of that is then shuffling around in the bureaucracy. They're getting yeah. paid to they're getting paid to do their work. And then they're sending some portion of it back to the states with strings attached. So you're sending them their money. You're sending it to bureaucrats who don't really know much about your own community or your own schooling needs, or your own needs as a parent, your own needs as a student. And then they're spending that money on themselves, making a living, and then they're sending it back, to you, some portion of it back to you and saying, here's some strings. Um, so I don't see how that benefits anyone. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not for uh, the federal government's involvement, whether it's, um, you know, Republicans in charge or Democrats in charge. I don't like what Trump did when he was trying to he was trying to use federal funding to say you have to push like patriotic programs and that kind of stuff. I'm against I'm against that stuff, too. I, Can I, I ask you, uh, you know, to follow up on this? though? Um, so are you against the, the principle that the federal government would condition money or is it that you don't like the way that they the conditions they put on it? Because. I can see, you know, we just, uh, Reason is, always participates in National School Choice Week, which is like the last week of uh, January every year, and it's a national kind of celebration of all varieties of school choice. But, like, 
if the federal government, which spends, a, you know, a, a, it's less than 10 percent of, you know, uh, uh, K through 12 funding, it, you know, comes from the federal government. It's mostly state and local, as you were saying. But if they were to do something like, OK, you can have this money, but you have to kind of prioritize school choice or giving uh, parents more options, you know, would you be against that as well? Uh, you know, just because they shouldn't be doing it in the first place. I mean, the question is a difficult one to answer. So if you're telling me that the federal government is going to have the money, then, yeah, they should they should, um, uh, you know, maximize school choice and preferences and options. But but as an underlying premise, I I disagree with the idea altogether of like the federal government being involved. I I don't think the federal government should be involved, even if if the choice is between leaving it with parents or leaving it in the states or having the federal government come in and then saying hey we're going to push school choice i'd rather just leave it with the parents right. in the states and not have the federal government can i all. ask a related question then because we did i did a, a video for reason and an article about how uh, between uh, tw- uh like 2002 and 2019 uh on average states uh, you know or, or per pupil revenue uh from all sources went up about 24 percent in new york New York spent was spending 68% more. They spend New York State on average spends $30,000 per student uh, now, and they are getting exactly the same results as they were in 2002 when they spent a lot less. But the range of school districts in New York, there are some school di- districts that spend as little as about $15,000 per student, and there's one that spends over $60,000 mm-hmm. per student. Do you think, uh, you know, within a state? Um, you, should there be some equalization of school funding like or should school funding be mostly a local issue or should it you know be uh, bumped up to a higher level to kind of smooth out um, you know income disparities that end up uh, you know condition or you know changing the amount of resources that are given to students I think given the, the fact that having an educated public, is a is a broad good it's something that is mm-hmm. good for everyone i think that having some mechanism to um address the fact that there are significant disparities between uh rich communities and poor communities yeah. is important and if i were in state government i would be trying to work out a, a mechanism that would address yeah. that you you can't completely remove disparities i don't right. think I don't think yeah. anyone's saying like, "Hey, um, we're going to make them exactly the same." Um, well, that's the progressives, there's, there's, <laughs> right? There's no. I don't yeah. think there's any way to do that. <laughs> However, you also don't want schools that are completely failing, and then you have a system where um, these kids are essentially forced into those schools. Right. I mean, there may be ways through competition to equalize some of this. There may be other mechanisms. It doesn't have to necessarily be. Um, we're going to keep exactly the uh, the schools we have as they right. are, and we're just going to pump more money into them. There yeah, other yeah, that's a disaster. Yeah, yeah, including competition where we can address these concerns. Yeah, um, or ways to ensure that parents do have more choices about where they send their where they send their children to school. Um, but yeah, I don't want to. I, I don't think it's good for society if people are. 
forced into bad schooling, and the, the reason is right. they just live in a poor community, and, and yeah. that's that. So, and so it's, yeah. it's so bad because I mean, you know, again, you you know, I think we totally agree on limits of like you don't want the government dictating all this kind of stuff and whatnot. But you know, if you're coming from a poor background. Uh, you're all, all, already at a, a disadvantage, particularly in terms of educational outcomes, because you know parental income and parental education levels, it, you know, are really strong indicators of how you're going to do in school. So, like, you're really screwing poor people. You know, kids who, through no fault of their own, you know, just grow up in a kind of bad, uh, bad environment, they get less and less, or or they're in schools that nobody really cares about. It's, yeah. I think, this is. You know, I, I know you and I have talked about this a little bit, Justin, of like, you know, this is a real issue within the libertarian community. I think of like, you know, uh, do you want to just absolutely minimize the state and just have as little as possible? Or is there room for a larger, you know, a, a larger state that is helping to make sure that people can really um optimize their lives you know again not at not at a super high cost or anything like that but how do you get people to a place where they can fully participate in society and and really you know maximize their individual potential and you know i think education is one of the you know funding education opportunities not schools but money to individuals um you know who can then spend it however they want is is one of the best things that libertarians could be talking about i mean we do a lot but i think you know, that to me is a, uh, you know, is, is a front and center issue. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, yeah, yeah. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it because my family's a bunch of liberals and, uh, I'm trying to bolster my arguments in terms of libertarianism because yeah. they're always like, Oh, you don't want, you don't want roads. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Patrick. Thanks. Bye. So let's see. So Nick, it brings up a question for me. What do you think about anarchism? Because you, there is this split among <laughs> among some yeah. libertarians, people, some people who call yeah, themselves yeah. libertarian, but right. they are more in the anarchist camp. Yeah. And did, did you ever find that appealing as you were growing up? I don't know, like when huh. you came to libertarianism. Yeah. And whether and um, and I think some of your reason colleagues are maybe in that camp. Oh, and, totally. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, so, and you know. So, you know, the, the main way I came to libertarianism was by reading Reason Magazine. My, I mentioned my brother, who was older than me, he went away to college. He also went to Rutgers, uh, which is also the alma mater of Milton Friedman. Uh, he went there as an undergrad, you know, in like the 20s or something. But um, And my brother studied economics, and it was funny because the, uh, the economics department was both proud of Milton Friedman and they were all kind of jealous of him. You know, and he was still alive. This was, the, I guess, where my brother would been the late 70s and early 80s. But at the bookstore there, he found reason. And he, you know, started giving it to me when it was done. He was like, oh, you know, this is, I think you'd like this. And that really kind of framed a lot of things that I thought about. And then I read Free to Choose. Um, later, after I graduated college, I worked as a newspaper reporter for a while and covered zoning boards and planning board meetings and things like that, the crap assignments you get. And that, you know, put like human annoying human faces on all of this theoretical understanding I knew of, like how petty bureaucrats with no real interest in, or knowledge of what's going on just kind of ruin people's lives or make them jump through a lot of hoops. Um, but as a result of that, I was never, um, you know, I, I think that we could get away with a lot less government than we have. You know, I, 
you know, when you look at the federal government, I, you know, I seriously think you could cut the budget in half and there would be, you know, a, a short period of adjustment and then nobody would really miss it. Um, you know, and that's, I think it could go smaller than that, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not an anarchist. And I do think it's a real growing tension in the libertarian movement. When I joined Reason in, in the early 90s, um, I think libertarians generally, there was an anarchist wing, but it was much more that libertarians are, you know, small, limited government, you know, kind of liberals. And they, you know, they believe that people should have as much freedom as possible. Government should have to prove why it's dictating or, you know, or regulating certain things. But there's a role for it, and it's not... You know, it isn't like, no, what we really need to do is get rid of every vestige of government or taxation. And, uh, you know, over the past 30 years, I think the anarchist wing of the Libertarian Party or the Libertarian Movement actually has grown. And I um, I got to say, like, you know, a lot of the times I, I don't find it particularly convincing or a compelling vision because it ends up being so obsessed with the government and getting rid of it and so obsessed with the state that you don't get on with the rest of your life. And like that to me was always kind of one of the odd things about libertarians is that for people who in general want to, you know, not talk about politics, I know a lot of libertarians who obsess about the state, you know, so much and in every day and every minute. It's kind of like, you know, I, I got I gotta get on with things. I gotta I gotta, you know, I gotta do my work. I gotta live. Um, so yeah, I think sometimes you run into a definitional problem too. Like, just yeah, um, you know, what is anarchism? What is libertarianism? Um, and you know, there are times when I'll describe, you know, my vision of how things work, and some anarchist might say, "Well, I I agree with that," but um, you know, at other times they'll hear me talk about something and say, "Hey, you, you're totally off base. There shouldn't be any government at all." But one right. of my one of the issues I think. Um, that's not talked enough about is is that when we talk about the state versus private, the idea of um, governance at different levels is sort of ignored. Mm -hmm. The idea yeah. that the government is not like on or off, like it's not like right. a one or a zero. Like there's there's this thing called the state, and then there's this other thing called private. Because our our lives are made up of all sorts of um, decision making groups. And we might yep. form those as small groups, or we might form those as large groups. Mm -hmm. And it seems like if it gets big enough, we call it the state. Right. And if it's small enough, we call it private. But it's more like a scale issue than it is like uh, just you know a difference in a total difference yep. in kind. Right. No, I, I agree. I also um, I, I know a lot of people who are like you know I want government to be uh, you know the most important government to be as close home or close to the people that it's governing or affecting. I got to tell you, you know, I lived uh, full and part-time for 20 years in Oxford, Ohio, a small town where Miami University is. My ex-wife was teaching there. That's where my kids were raised. And, uh, you know, there's something about, um, you know, a small government when it's tyrannical or despotic or just kind of, you know, asinine. It is so in your face, it's much more punishing than a kind of distant dictate from Rome or Washington D.C., which you you know you know might have to pay tribute to, or you can kind of ignore. So you know, for me, and I realize this is you know people talk about thick and thin libertarianism. I guess I'm a thick libertarian in that I think like you know in all aspects of my life I want to be libertarian. I mean, it's like I want to be you know respectful. I want to be tolerant. I want to be you know pluralistic, and I want 
coercion to be at a minimum amount, you know, both in the public and the private sphere. So I've known libertarians who are like, well, you know, philosophically or politically, I'm libertarian, but then in my personal life, they might belong to a church or a homeowner's association or something that is really kind of tyrannical and despotic as far as I'm concerned. And like, for me, that doesn't work. But, I, you know, I understand people, some people are like that. So Yeah, which brings up a, a question I have, I guess. Are you religious? No. You grew, you grew up Catholic. Yeah, um, yeah. I know it. I, I know, I, trust me, I know, uh, you know, Catholic theology extremely well. I remain interested in it. And, you know, I have five of seven sacraments. I don't know how many sacraments the Orthodox Church uh, coughs up. But, you know, I got the only ones I don't have are I didn't get married in the Catholic Church, matrimonies, and uh, I didn't become a priest. Uh, so, you know, they being able to uh, consecrate yeah, right. the host. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got to leave something for my 70s, I suppose. Uh, but, I've got, you know, I've got five, uh, you know, five sacraments in my pocket, outward signs of God's grace. And um, I have a lot of respect for religion. Um, I'm nervous about it because I think, you know, at various points and in a lot depending on the situation, it has been an incredible engine for human freedom and liberation, and then in other places, other places and times, it's been incredibly repressive, and it has functioned either as a state or with a state to really kind of quash people's lives. But um, I, I, you know, I think religion is the most. It, you know, it, it, the other thing is about it is like it's the only thing that is able, only institution that has been able to maintain itself over centuries, you know, and still be really meaningful and adapt and grow. And, you know, even family kind of doesn't last that long. So does it, does it create any tension in the reason offices? Uh, like, you know, I, I'll, yeah, I I'll say, some yeah. Of them, I imagine some of them are agnostic or, or atheist. There's or, a couple of, uh, right? kind, you know, I don't think we have anybody who is, uh, you know, a super hardcore, like an in your face atheist, uh, you know, like an evangelical atheist. We do have some people who converted to Catholicism, and I, I would be lying if I didn't say, you know, it's like, you know, when you're born into something and then people convert, it's kind of like, yeah, I get it. You're, you know, it's very exciting for the first couple of years or something. But um, it's, um, I, I haven't seen any real points of super conflict, um, you know, because again, at reason, I think broadly speaking, we're all pretty uh, laissez-faire and, um you know, so it's 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 really live and let live. Yeah, I think there there are some people who maybe view um, libertarianism as being in tension with religion um, because yeah. of some of the things you right. said, like this yeah. idea of sort of um, you know giving yourself to something else. In a, in a yeah, I, I don't think that. I I know a lot of people will say that it's like it's it, you know it's collectivist or something, or that you are surrendering your autonomy to God or a higher power, and I I don't see that as in conflict at all with. You know, uh, you know, for me, and a lot of, increasingly, I think about libertarianism as a philosophy or a lifestyle of empathy and autonomy. And it's like you're free to do what you want with your with your life and with you know. I don't really believe in souls, but like you know, with you know, with what you believe. And um, you know, I uh, I find it um, I find it worrisome when people are really um, whether they're religious or whether they're atheistic. Uh, when they're intolerant of other people's lifestyles. It's, um, you know, unless it's really disrupting your ability to live your life freely, you know, it's like, 
you know, learn from each other and kind of in, engage with each other as much as possible. Yeah. Speaking of living life freely, um, I'm a person who's never really um, done any drugs. You know, I don't, I don't yeah. smoke. Uh, I you rare, drink I, though, right? I drink very rarely. Yeah. So if do you, you get drunk? Talk, may I ask? Like, wanna, I mean, uh, not really. No. Okay. Not, I mean, in my life, yes. Yeah. In my life, yes, but. But not um, not really as uh, you know in the past many years. Yeah, that's so. Good. Is how do you feel about drugs? Have, I mean, is it something? Because some like I'm a big you know I'm I'm all for ending the drug war. Um, right. I speak about this stuff all the time. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a view of libertarians that they are you know they they do a lot of drugs or they're into drugs. Some libertarians are. Um, right. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. You can answer. I, I talk but, freely about my drug use. I, uh, you know, I, um, I am all for ending the drug war. I, and I don't think that the state or any authority has a right to dictate the intoxicants that, you know, are, are acceptable. Um, I think there's room for talking about children or people under the age of legal majority and stuff. But I'm against the drug war. And I, I do think, and this caused a stir when I became editor of Reason, because I was open. I was not merely saying, you know, it would be a better world if the, if the drug war didn't exist. It's I actually think that drugs are positive things and can be. I mean, I... Um, I no longer drink. I used to drink, and at times very heavily. Then uh, this, I think, was an inheritance of the Irish side of my family. My father had a drinking problem, and his father had a drinking problem. And I, I don't know any relatives beyond my grandparents. I'm sure on the father on my Irish side that you know, going back as many generations as there are, there were probably drinking problems. And um, I stopped drinking several years ago because I, it, it was not working for me, and it was making me you know, a bad person to be around and unhappy. But I do um, other types of drugs, uh, particularly psychedelics, um, which don't affect me in the same way. Like, I, you know, they're, they're not addictive for me or I don't have an abuse issue with them. And they are positive goods. I mean, um, you know, uh, dropping acid from time to time, uh, magic mushroom, psilocybin, mescaline, uh, ayahuasca, ketamine, uh, these... I've had very positive experiences on all of these, and they I, I don't think they're magical. They don't transport you to a different dimension, but they Some people clear think my that, head. Though. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I you know, and I'm a little disappointed that they don't, but uh, you know, and I, I both take them are kind you, of yeah. Are you sure they don't? Yeah, I, I think I am. Uh, you know, and there's things like DMT, which is a psychedelic, which is the one that most feels like you get transported to a, a different dimension, but it's you know, it's it's a chemical process in your brain and whatnot. Um, but I find it, you know, I find them genuinely useful. Like they help with depression, they help with um, anxiety, they help with a listlessness. Like I think about some of these drugs um, and things like MDMA can help you connect both with yourself and people around you in profound ways um, that I have not been able to do, you know, through, you know, in, you know, encounter groups or therapy or something like that. Um, but a lot of them, I think of it as like emptying, you know, clearing your web browser cache. You know, when you are on the web for a long time and stuff like that, you you everything gets kind of kludgy and, you know, it's slow moving, et cetera. And I found with a lot of the psychedelic type drugs that they, um, you know, they, they, you know, it's kind of like, okay, wow, it's refreshing. And then I can start over again. 
Um, and so I, you know, I don't think everybody should take drugs. I'm not an evangelist for any of these things, but they are good, you know. And, and you know, my colleague Jacob Solom uh, got about 15 years ago, wrote a book called Saying Yes, uh, which was a, a, a kind of defense of responsible drug use. And he marshaled huge amounts of evidence that there are people who are responsible heroin users, um, as well as, you know, responsible weed users and responsible drinkers. And it's worth thinking about that, I think. Um, and there's a great book by uh, Columbia, um, I guess he's a neuroscientist uh, or psychologist, uh, Carl Hart, uh, that came out a year ago called uh, uh, Drug Use for Grownups. And he talks about using opioids, um, you know, to kind of relax and hang out with his wife um, in very positive ways. You know, it's not it's not the drug. It's kind of your approach to it and how you do it. And, you know, some people have problems, some people don't. And um, they can be really good. It's like, you know, it's the way wine intensifies a good meal. Um, you know, drugs can do that with other types of experiences. So when you you talked about not drinking anymore, so... Mm-hmm. Would you say alcohol affects you in a way that is can be negative for your life in a way that Absolutely. these drugs in a way that these yes. drugs don't? Yeah, and you know I think a lot about that. I uh, I don't think addiction you know addiction is not like a brain disease which the NIDA the government uh, organization kind of contends. Um, and I don't know how much of it is you know that you habituate yourself to certain types of behaviors, you know, with certain types of substances or something like that. But yeah, I'm not a, I wasn't a good drinker. And uh, I, you know, I, you know, I don't see myself going back to that. So as someone who has no familiarity, familiarity mm-hmm. with this stuff, um, when you're doing, um, you know, ayahuasca or mushrooms or, or something like that, yeah, are you, are you working up to a certain level where you start very small or is that not a thing like do you just like uh, you just you like know, hey it's your first time yeah. you're just like you yeah. just go for it and is it scary do you get do you, i yeah. have yeah you know it's funny um a lot of people have scary experiences either you know when they're drinking when they're smoking weed when they're dropping lsd or something like that i have yet to have i've had kind of hairy experiences and intense ones but my predisposition towards them is to not to think of them in negative terms. So like I've, you know, I've seen weird things in my head. I've encountered, you know, people from my past. Um, I've, you know, things like that. I've, you know, um, seen people I love who are dead. Um, and, um, you know, it's intense, but I don't see it as bad. But, you know, it's, it's very good if you're doing any of these things to um, do them intentionally and take them seriously. And there's, you know, a lot of information out there. But, you know, with something like LSD, uh, you know, a standard dose these days is 100 micrograms. And if you're taking like a tab of acid, it's usually about that. And that's a pretty good dose. You know, back in the 60s, 300 micrograms was like the typical dose. So mm-hmm. things change. One of the things that is very annoying about the drug war is that it pushes the culture and the wisdom around all of these things, you know, underground, and it makes it hard to find. That's starting to bubble up again because of the Internet, but also because the drug war is ending. I mean, this is a profound win primarily for libertarian policies that, you know, you know, compared to when Nixon started the drug war in 71 or the modern version of it. You know, like we are winding that down. We have a long way to go and things like that. But there are, 
you know, venture capital funds and investment funds for psychedelics, mostly dealing with medical therapy, you know, that have billions of dollars that are, you know, that are moving through the process of getting this stuff legal. And you can find, you know, there's books like Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind, which uh, is good. I mean, I find it a little NPR-ish. It's kind of like a little bit moderate and boring to me. But um, um, listening to Ecstasy by Charlie Winninger, who's a fantastic therapist, um, and Psychonaut, you know, who it's, it's a fantastic book about, you know, how to take MDMA uh, and get the most out of it and know what you're doing. And you, and you do have to know what you're doing because... All of these substances are illegal or, you know, various shades of illegal. And so you, you know, you have to know, you have to test them. You have to know what to look out for um, because there's a lot of bad stuff out there because, you know, nobody is, nobody is liable because they're illegal. It's the, the, yeah. you know, the negative consequences of the drug war are just so brutal. Um, but, um, yeah, there, you know, you, it's, it's good to do it with people that know more than you do and then kind of explore and things like that. You know, it, you bring up a good point about, um, you know, libertarianism or the libertarian mm-hmm. world, because there are a lot of people who view um, society or view what's happening with government, and, and they seem to think we're going in the direction of less libertarianism. And there are some respects in which that's true, but... There are many respects in which that's not true, in, yeah. in which the world today is freer and people have more choices. I, and, and I have here in my hand a list, like Joseph, Senator Joseph McCarthy, of big popular wins for libertarianism that I wrote down over the past couple of years because this comes up. And it is like it's easy to be really negative and be like, you know, when you look at the federal budget... You know, in 2021, it was $6.8 trillion. In 2019, it was $4.4 trillion. You know, in, in, uh, you know, in unadjusted uh, un- uh, uh, for inflation in 2000, it was like $2 trillion or something. Like, you can look at a lot of things and see how terrible things are going. But like you're saying, you know, the drug war is changing. Freedom of speech, which is under attack, is much better. You know, and uh, this is something that I think, uh, you know, the earlier caller kind of pointed to. But uh, you were certainly a part of this. You know, America is now effectively an anti-war country, uh, which is radically different than, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, Gun rights have expanded while, you know, gun violence has gone down. Drug legalization, you know, technology has changed in a way, um, you know, that we are freer, even if the government is trying to weasel into more and more of our things. There's there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, and then, uh, you know, a lot of cultural freedoms uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, sexual freedom. If you are, you know, if you're, dep- if depending on your sexual orientation, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, you were, you were like incapable of either exercising your sexuality or being open about it. And almost all of that is gone now. These are good things. Yeah. I think we've had a lot of big wins and, yeah. um, and it's underappreciated. And, you know, when, when people talk about, uh, you know, what is uh, a libertarian society? You know, people ask me about that all the time. I think that there are many ways in which the United States embodies a lot of a lot of those aspects. You know, yep. we have a we have a lot of problems, and and we have uh, you know way too much government, way too much control, still. And in some ways, it goes in the wrong direction, like the federal budget, mm-hmm. and um, and in a lot of other ways, we've moved in the right direction. And freedom freedom of speech is a great example too. Like, yeah, where you know it's under it's under attack a little bit right now, but. But if you compare freedom of speech today, the way it's treated, um, even by courts, as mm-hmm. an example, versus, yeah. say, 
60, 70 years ago, a huge difference. God, it's, yeah, it's been nothing but, uh, nothing but wins, um, you know, which is kind of amazing. And even during, you know, things like Citizens United, which, uh, you know, was supposedly about campaigning and political contributions, but it's like, you know, it was a speech case and it was decided absolutely properly in favor of more unfettered speech. You know, on, and on other things, like when people say, what would a libertarian society look like? You know, I, I used to like to say, well, you know, it looks a lot like Whole Foods, um, where you have this incredible, you know, cathedral to commerce, where they're coming up with new, weird, different things that you hadn't seen before. Whole Foods couldn't exist without free trade. Whole Foods couldn't exist without, like, you know, entrepreneurial enterprise and, like, the ability of businesses to to kind of grow and change. But, you know, when you walk down the produce aisles of, of contemporary grocery stores, you are seeing, I, I used to talk about this a lot, um, when I was growing up, you know, in New Jersey, say, uh, you know, if you went to ShopRite, was the big chain there, you know, there would be one type of eggplant in the produce aisle, and you know, it was a dark purple. And now in the crappiest supermarkets in America, there's like three or four or five types of eggplant. And that's a win, you know, and, you know, there's like prehistoric kale, right? There's like dinosaur yeah. kale and stuff. And, you know, that stuff is coming because we are more globalized, because we're dealing more with the world. Also, because people are more interested in experiencing new things and trying new things. And, you know, we're hybridizing and individualizing and coming up with new things that we like and want to explore. You know, this is pretty great. No, I, I'm glad you brought up grocery stores. I'm always amazed by grocery stores. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, one time I took my um, staff on a field trip to the local grocery store in Grand Rapids, mm-hmm. um, in Meyer, which is the yeah. you know my, my successor's uh, right grocery. And store. I'm you know from I, living in Ohio, I'm familiar with Meyer Superstores, which are yeah, pretty so spectacular. Yeah. I was like, we don't, you know, there's not this kind of thing in D.C. or another in some other yeah. parts of the country that with that level of variety. Um, right. So I was like, hey, let's go check out the Meyer, and I, I want to show you what you know a real grocery <laughs> store looks like. And their eyes were just wide as they like. Walk yeah. up that place, you know, just you couldn't believe what they were saying. But yeah, there are places like this throughout the country, and it's mm-hmm. made possible because of freedom. Um, yeah. You know, free trade, um, free markets, and the and, ability uh, to just, you know, permissionless innovation is a big theme for me. And, um, you know, obviously, in gro- if a grocery store, you have to get permits and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, mergers are always, you know, hassled by the government the first one or two times they try. But the idea that um, I so I lived in Huntsville, Texas for a while. My ex-wife was teaching at Sam Houston State. Huntsville is about 80 miles north of Houston. It's where the death chamber in Texas is. It's where the Texas Department of Corrections is headquartered. And but it's also because it's Texas. It just had like a lot of weird stuff going on. And there were like weird restaurants. Some of them were barbecue joints. There was a barbecue joint uh, next to a black Baptist church. That was like literally next to the church building, like in almost no other place would that have been allowed because it was like a church and a food, you know, a kitchen next door to each other. There was a guy who had uh, played basketball for Sam Houston State, and then he, he had a pro career in Italy, and he learned how to cook Italian food, and he had like a corner in this beer hall, you know, that only served like Miller Lite and Bud Light or something in plastic cups, and then in the corner he had made this little Italian restaurant that had some of the best food I'd ever seen. And like, you know, he could just do that. Um, and that's kind of great. And I think that's a sense of wonder, you know, that we need to really kind of continue to 
talk about and valorize. And I'll put in some plugs for the Midwest. You know, I, I you know, kind of am a coastal elite. I, you know, I spent a lot of time in New York and L.A., um, but I spent 20 years. I've lived in the Midwest longer than any place else. And there's a lot of these weird moments and interesting, innovative places in the middle of nowhere, or what people think is the middle of nowhere. And it's kind of great, you know. And we, we need to, you know, kind of pause and, and celebrate that more than we do. Yeah. Before we get too far from the um, the drug conversation, because I have yeah. a couple things to talk about. When you're taking those drugs, does it feel like an intense dream? What is the... Yeah, is, that's... How would yeah. you describe it to someone who's not, who's not so, done, done drugs like that? Yeah, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that's interesting is that people think, like, you know, with something like LSD, you know, with acid, um, or, you know, magic mushrooms, maybe, they'll be like, are you, do you even know where you are? Like, are you, you know, zooming out, uh, you know, past Pluto and stuff like that? And it's not, it's not really like that. Like, you always know who you are, and you always know kind of where you are, um, you know, it can get trippy and, you know, like I'm sure you've had, you know, you might be taking prescription drugs for a cold or something or you're overtired or you're really working out intensely and you have a kind of out of body experience or, you know, something where you're like, wow, I know it's me, but like I'm in a different place. There's some of that. But, you know, this is both, um, uh, you know, it's it's both one of the great things about psychedelics and it's also kind of one of the disappointing things is that you you know, you know who you are throughout. You you feel free to explore different parts of yourself, and you can see wonderful things like some hallucinations and things like that. But mostly, you know where they are. I gave a talk. This was probably about fifteen years ago or something at the uh, 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 conference for students for sensible drug policy, which is a pretty good group. Um, you know, they're getting more and more lefty, which is a little worrying, but. Um, uh, it was about what would a post-prohibition America look like. And one of the things that I said, and this was heavily influenced by Jacob Solomon's work, who's just fantastic on drug policy, but both drug warriors and drug kind of zealots um, share, you know, they want to share a similar, you know, a common myth that like these substances will completely take over somebody. Like they could make you instantly addicted or they could transform you you know, from being depressed and a, you know, a kind of schlubby into an outgoing, perfectly integrated person. And the fact is, is that they really don't do this. You know, drugs work, um, you know, they, they are powerful and they are good and they can help you get to better places or worse places. But, you know, it, it, they're not atom bombs, you know, for the, for the yeah. psyche or anything like that. And one of the other things that's really interesting, I, I know Rick Doblin, who's a guy who um, started a group called MAPS, in the 80s, and he, that group is bringing MDMA through FDA trials. They're in stage three trials. It, sh- it should be uh, for um, psycho, uh, uh, psychotherapy assisted with MDMA for things like PTSD, anxiety, depression. And he really stresses, um, you know, that it's like they are not legalizing MDMA per se. It's like with psychotherapy, and the psychotherapy as, as, is as important. So, if you're going to get something out of a lot of these drugs, including even when you're doing it for, you know, kind of pleasure or recreation, you kind of got to know what you're doing and you got to be intentional and kind of figure out what you want to do and how you get there using these substances. They're tools or technology. Is it something you're doing by yourself or is it or is it with other people? Because I've, yeah. I've wondered about this. Are you when you're 
sort of transported into this dreamlike world. Right. Are that, you? Yeah. Okay. That's well, your you, sense. You frame it however, yeah. However you, yeah. You I mean, it. you're are in. You you're in. You're tripping. Let's say. Yeah. Okay. So are you? Are you at risk of like falling and bumping your head or like? No, uh, no. not generally. But yeah. But to go to your actual question, like almost like you're wearing a VR helmet and you're like going to just trip over yeah. something because you don't right. see anything. Is yeah. Like I mean, that? that's you have, that's, you have someone yeah. protecting you. You know, it's the smart move is to always have somebody around who, you know, what's called trip sitting so that you have somebody who's not, you know, under the influence of anything in case anything goes wrong. But, you know, I've I've done uh, I've taken trips by myself because I want to and I want to be solitary. Other times it's in group settings. Um, other times, uh, you know, the first time I did MDMA or ecstasy was when I was in college. It, it was banned in 1985. I think and it may have only taken effect in 86, but I'd done it when it was legal. I mean, I, you know, I, I got it illegally, but it was legal. And it was a different experience than after. After 1985, it became much more of a rave drug and kind of the properties of an MDMA trip changed from being something where it was very inward looking and almost antisocial. Uh, people were worried that you'd take uh, MDMA and you would stay in like your room or maybe you and your girlfriend or partner would just touch each other. You wouldn't have sex because it was you're so heightened, but you didn't want to go out. And then it was banned and then it became kind of associated with rave culture. And, you know, then it, the problem with it was that it was too social. And like people, you know, these huge throbbing mobs of young people would dance and fuck and, you know, drink until they until they, uh, you know, died from exhaustion, which goes to the you know point that. The substances differ, but it's also kind of our expectations, what's called the set and setting. But, but so I do a mix of things and they, for different effects. And, you know, one of the things I would say, you, you, how long have you been married? Uh, 17 years. Yeah, you know, which is great. And congratulations on that. Um, I, you know, you might look for, not because there's any, you know, anything is wrong, but it's like for an intense experience with your wife or with your spouse or your partner, do an MDMA session because what MDMA does is it kind of releases or it relaxes a lot of your, um, you know, kind of defenses, psychic, yeah, psychic been, and emotional it's, defenses. It's been 18 years. I better correct. Okay. Yes, please. Um, but, um, you know, it's an, it's an incredible thing to do, you know, with a partner, um, you know, not, uh, you know, not sexual per se, but it's incredibly, it can be incredibly, erotic or erogenous and it's just it's an incredible experience you know like to to feel at one with many things especially you know the person who you care you care about most in the world um yeah there's lots of good things that can come from legalized drug use that where people are doing it intentionally in a in, in a responsible fashion let's go to um let's go to uh one of the callers Travis, you there? Yes, sir. Hey, Travis, uh, how you doing? Outstanding, sir. Uh, two questions or, or two points. Earlier, we were talking about denuclearization. With what's going on in Ukraine, with Ukraine having given up their weapons for security uh, assurances that are now falling through, how much harder is that going to make it without us having to give security uh, the guarantees? us being the United States. I'm sorry. Say it again, Travis, for me. Okay, so with, what's going on with Ukraine? Ukraine had nuclear weapons at the breakup of the USSR. Yeah. And they gave them up with security concerns from Russia. Well, 
we all see how that's going and how that's working out for Ukraine. Won't that make it a lot harder for countries to be willing to do that without a, another country such as the United States providing security uh, guarantees? Well, yeah, I think it's always hard for a country to um, make a, a pledge like that, that it's not going to pursue nuclear weapons, um, knowing that it's also under threat uh, from its neighbors. Um, the I, I don't take issue with the United States, um, you know, having alliances with other countries, making, you know, pledges to other countries that we will work with you, we'll work with you on defense. What what I think is troubling about the system we have today is that people are under the impression that because we have made pledges to Eastern European countries, and, and now Ukraine is not part of NATO, but there are other countries around there, and there's some sense in which anytime Ukraine is threatened, um, we build up our forces over there under the idea that, well, our our NATO allies are now threatened too. The, the main issue I take with all of this is not that we have agreements, not that we have pledges, not that we say, hey, these are our friends and partners. It's that we've turned the entire system of checks and balances and separation of powers on its head. You, you can't just have a treaty or an executive agreement or something else of that nature um, turn off the... Uh, role of Congress under our Constitution. And I think that's largely what's happened. And um, that should be our concern as Americans going forward. I, I think, yes, a lot of countries around the world want um, America's backing. And I don't think it's always a bad idea to, to say, yeah, we're, we're going to help you. We, you're our friend. You're our partner. What I do think is a bad idea is when we say, okay, because we've made this agreement with a country or, or a group of countries, uh, Congress is completely cut out of the picture. The president can unilaterally just move troops. The president can unilaterally use force. Um, that is, I think, very dangerous for us going but forward. Who's the, whose fault is that, Justin? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, obviously the president is. You know, presidents are going to president, right? But why is Congress? you know, so out of it? Why do they not insist on, you know, their constitutional prerogatives yeah, because to they you know, have be no involved? In, they have no incentive to do that. Be yeah. Because when you look at Congress, they're, they're, in some ways, it's now built around this idea of not being responsible, not being accountable. Yeah. Why would they want the accountability when they don't have to have it? No, yeah. There's not a lot of pressure. There's certainly not a, a lot of public pressure and the media are totally missing in action here. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no effort by CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or any of them to say in any of these circumstances, hey, why is Congress not involved? And as a result, people at home, they look at it and they say, I don't know, nobody's saying Congress has yeah. to be involved. And they, they start to believe things. You'll get these experts who come on TV and they say, uh, the War Powers Resolution allows the president yeah. to do X, Y, and Z yeah. without any congressional approval. and, right. and Or um, the, the NATO Treaty allows all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And people at home just buy it because they're not studying this yeah. stuff. Uh, they've got their own lives they're dealing with. They're not going to become experts on NATO or on the War Powers Resolution um, or even on the Constitution most of the time. Right. So, uh, so you have this... You have no incentive for anyone in Congress to actually 
um, care about resuming those mm. powers, you know, reclaiming those powers, uh, why would they do it when they can just wait, see how things turn out, and yeah. if it turns out bad, they say, well, that horrible president, how dare he mm-hmm. do that, what a, what a catastrophe, isn't Trump the worst, isn't Biden the worst, mm. uh, and if it goes well, they say, yeah, he, he, I was with it. I was with the president the whole time. Right. I totally agreed. It was a good idea. And and so <laughs> that's the reason you don't have any accountability. You know, to follow up a bit on uh, what Travis was talking about, or maybe from a different angle, um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, do you think NATO should have dissolved or at least had a fundamental, like an explicit kind of rechartering of its purpose? Because, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm, I, as I get older, I become more and more a critic of most many of our actions during the Cold War. But regardless of that, you know, NATO NATO's purpose was over, right? When the Soviet Union dissolved, and it's I, it seems to me kind of inarguable that NATO being around and NATO expansion is you know it, you know Putin is a is a tyrant and an awful person, but it's also like he's also a leader, you know, protecting his his sphere of influence and things like that. And it seems like NATO, you know, it's not clear to me what their point, you know, what, what's the point of NATO at this point. Um, and, you know, you'd get into weird missions because of that. Yeah. And I'm not sure um, when you look at, when you look at the, the troop buildup, even in that uh, region, it seems to me, and I, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that a, a lot of it is American troops. I don't know, like, um, how many troops the other countries are sending, but it does not seem like a large force being sent by members of the European Union, mm-hmm. um, which is a more populous area than the United States. I, I think a lot of people forget that. There are more people in the European Union than in the United States, and you think that if someone is threatening the European Union... Yeah. They would be the ones who say, like, we're the ones, we're going to put our people at, at the front lines. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I Again, I'm not against um, the idea of alliances. Um, I don't think that uh, the idea of telling people, hey, these are our friends and partners is a bad thing. When When some of the founders talked about not having entangling alliances, I think their fear was that we would have, um, so much um, tied up with other countries that uh, we wouldn't be thinking for ourselves. We'd be sort of controlled by the other countries. And, and that's why the, the word entangling there, I think, is a key word. Um, but alliances themselves are not a problem. It's just we have to follow our own system and our, our own constitution. Mm-hmm. Let's go to um, the next caller here. Wes? Can you hear me? Yeah, hey, Wes. Hi. Uh, i got a question for actually both of you, and I want to hear what you have to say about it. So, uh, one of the things I see where I live in Ohio is we've got a really big, in our county, strong Republican Party, and you rarely ever see any diversity in the politics, and it's very corrupt. And uh, I'm just curious. What, what you, county are you in? Um, Skingham. Okay. And it would just be uh, interesting to hear what you guys think that it would lead to more libertarians out on the ballot when, I mean, we have 12 registered libertarians in the whole county. Mm. 
So I'm sorry. What's your question? Uh, what yeah, tell you, me the, yeah. What's the question? With? Yeah. How how would you increase uh, the party and oh, get more libertarians? I guess on the ballot. And I mean, at the end of the day. So I don't know what the ballot rules are are like in uh, Ohio. They they really uh, suck. I mean, they, it's <laughs> yes. it's a, it's one of the archetypal you know states where. The, you know, the only thing that Democrats, you know, Democrats and Republicans are basically the same in Ohio. And the one thing they totally agree on is keeping other parties off. The yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of it's sort of tricky because in order for a libertarian to be successful or to or mm-hmm. to attract quality libertarian candidates, um, you have to have ballot rules that are pretty good. But in order to get the ballot rules fixed, you basically have to have libertarians in yep. government and or independent people in government who are going to fix it. Um, because the two parties, the two old parties, aren't really interested in, in helping. Um, so my view is we have to move toward different voting systems. Alaska is is trying something different now. They have a a special kind of ranked choice voting system that I think we should look at. We should see how it works in Alaska um, and see if the people are satisfied with it and find it appealing. But I think if we move to some of these alternative voting systems, there are ways for libertarian candidates to be successful um, against the old parties. If you get a very strong libertarian candidate, they can do it. Now, you're always going to be at a disadvantage running as a libertarian, at least in the near future. So I I don't think we should, um, you know, fool ourselves into believing that any libertarian candidate is just going to come along and um, have as easy a time as a Republican or Democratic candidate. That, That libertarian candidate to be successful has to probably be 10 times better than the Republican or Democratic candidate and actually have some, maybe some prominence um, within the community or some kind of, you know, some ability to, to break through um, despite the ballot issues, despite the, you know, um, the uh, party ID issues to just break through. And so like, uh, when I look at how the Libertarian Party is going to break through, I think it's most likely to happen in a very big race and not as likely to happen in smaller races. I think the big race will lead to smaller races, but um, I, I don't think it can come. I don't think, in other words, no. you can build up a Libertarian Party simply from the bottom up by by winning county commission seats or state house seats. I think you have to actually have the right candidates running at higher levels of office, president, governor, senator, um, or Congress, and winning those races where I think the race is actually more winnable for someone who's not in the old parties, and then building um, sort of the the field below them with with candidates below them. Yeah, you know, if I uh, may, I I know a little bit about Muskingum County, and it is, uh, you know, Wes, you are not underselling it when you say it is a Republican stronghold. This has got to be one of the bluest or reddest joints, you know, in the country. Uh, And Ohio has a bunch of places like that, uh, you know, even as it's going purple more broadly. But I wonder uh, two things. One, you know, is there anything at like Muskingum University or, you know, or what's it like Zanesville, uh, like the Ohio State Satellite Campus of Zanesville or something? Is there anything there where you can kind of get a student group 
or a bunch of student activists to kind of do fun and interesting stuff that might get some attention? Or is there a local businessman, uh, you know, or woman who has, a, you know, kind of what Justin's talking about, who has a profile and has, you know, money and standing? And like, can they, you know, either start hosting libertarian things or run for, you know, the type of county or local office that might actually, you know, you only need a few hundred or a few thousand votes to win and kind of build out of that, but make it almost like an art project, you know, where you're just going to be doing interesting things, um, you know, that kind of flout the law or convention and, you know, get more attention for, you know, why libertarians are cool and why they, you know, the world that we want to live in is better than the one that, you know, uh, you know, Republicans want. So I've uh, looked at towards those colleges. I, I did attend uh, one, uh, the community college for mm-hmm. about three years. And th- it seems like most people, when they go in there, they feel they have that attitude. They, that it's very closed minded. They don't think that those college professors uh, are either going to influence them in a good way or bad way. And so they're either going to go in there radical progressives, which there's very few mm-hmm. and they're very defensive. And that, or you're going to have your general, it seems like radical Republicans. There was a few of yeah. us, um, we, we had discussions, but it didn't seem like we could ever kick anything off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I guess I can't think of any libertarian minded business owners because most often they find their success through Republican party support. Yeah. It's and now, and, yeah, that, I, I got to tell you, and I, you know, I hate to say this with a Michigander on the line, <laughs> Go West, <blue>. but, <laughs> but, you know, like Ohio is, it's deeply troubling to me that, you know, to be a successful businessman or woman, it's like you are, so, you know, where the government ends and private enterprise begins is kind of a, you know, it's a real no man's land. And I mean, that's true in lots of parts of the country. But, um, you know, Ohio is a big government state. And like, you know, the Republicans have their version of it and Democrats have their version. But it means a lot of business people love things like zoning laws and, you know, land use planning and, you know, all sorts of things where they can, you know, they can control the process and kind of screw over competitors and things like that. But you'd be surprised. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe one thing that you do, I, you know, I have no idea what your circumstances, but maybe can you create a business, like get your buddies together and like, you know, look through the, you know, zoning or, or land use laws. And can you create a kind of, uh, you know, gathering spot that's, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a bar or a picnic area that becomes a hub of activity. And so you just start living more free. You know, you make your world more free without worrying about whether or not you're, you're getting somebody uh, you know, to be the county clerk or the treasurer or something. Um, well, when I look at the Libertarian Party of Muskegon County, I, their Facebook page, I, I see that they used to have some gatherings at a um, local craft beer bar. And um, it just kind of seemed like it fizzled out by the looks of things. And it just doesn't seem to ever pick up much momentum. Um, but, I mean, how would you even go about, in your eyes, gathering people when you really don't know many they share the same views because they're kind of stuck in this bubble of everything needs to be Republican or everything needs to be Democrat. There's really just not that middle room. Well, I, Wes, I think you could talk about the issues and attract them with the issues. I don't think the, the label matters. You can tell them, you know, get, get people together on issues you care about. And then you can talk about why you're a libertarian. I, I think that's the, that's the way to do it. Um, if, 
there are a lot of people who think they're a Republican or think they're a Democrat mm-hmm. until they realize uh, what libertarianism is, and, yeah. and then, then they come on over. You know, um, I would uh, hit. You know, maybe build something around uh, Justin. I don't. I don't know what Michigan is like, but Ohio has this truly messed up uh, local income tax. Basically, there's only like five or six municipalities in all of Ohio that don't charge an income tax, usually around 2% of every dollar of income from dollar one to, you know, dollar infinity. Um, you know, and it's like, it is so weird. But, uh, you know, Wes, I wonder if uh, people might not be interested in talking about that and either figuring out where it's going or how to reduce it or something like that. So instead of talking about maybe a general thing, kind of focus on maybe a local issue that could be affecting yeah. the community. Yeah. yeah, I think okay. so. Because when you see groups that form, they there are some groups that form and become pretty big over just a local issue. Right. Um, you know, you start something like that uh, later on while you've got the people and you've got their attention. Now you say, hey, I'm a libertarian. Here's why I'm a libertarian. Right. Um, and you, you bring them into it. I, I think... Um, as I said, a lot of people don't realize they're libertarians. They hear things about libertarianism. Um, they're not sure what it is. People on the right and people on the left have their own misconceptions. They're different misconceptions. Um, you wouldn't believe how many people, uh, for example, on the left come in and they'll say something about libertarians that is totally off base. I'm like, hey, you know, we agree with you guys on this issue. And in fact, we were the leading the charge on this issue. You're the guys that came along later and joined us. Um, or people on the right who think that, um, you know, uh, libertarians are, you know, just like, I don't know. Crazy drug users. Yeah, just drug users. Who don't go to church. That it's like a drug user who doesn't go to church or whatever. But um, I'm an example of someone who doesn't really use any drug. Like I said, I drink very occasionally. And uh, and I do go to church. I'm Orthodox Christian. So, like, it, it... there, and there are all sorts of libertarians. I'm a, I happen to be pro-life, and I'm a libertarian. And there are other libertarians who are pro-choice. So yeah. the libertarian um, party and the libertarian movement is a diverse group of people. Yeah. I think what unites libertarians is um, a, largely a tolerance for other people, a desire for human cooperation, um, embracing diversity and ideas and freedom of expression, freedom of speech. That's what libertarianism really is at its core, and um, and so people have um, have their own notions about it. But I, I think the key is talk about some issues and then bring them in, and, and you can talk about libertarianism that way. So, where would you talk about those issues to essentially gather the people and gain the support? Well, a craft brew place, yeah, you know, or whatever. No, I mean just together, have a yeah, meetup. Yeah, yeah have together a meetup. You know. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Keep them well. flying. Take care. So, Nick, I've been wondering, what the hell is an editor at large? You know, I hear this yeah. this phrase all the time. I'm not in the journalism business. Yeah, it can uh, mean a lot of different things. Uh, depend, it's like contributing editor or, uh, you know. So uh, for me, and this is also true for Matt Welch, uh, you know, my colleague and uh, sometime collaborator who was also editor of the print magazine, um, an editor where, you know, I'm on staff at Reason and I, um, instead of doing management, which I'd done for, you know, 
a couple of decades. Uh, like I write, I, I make content now, and I you know do speaking engagements and things like that. So I'm a you know full time staffer at Reason. I produce. I participate in like two two podcasts a week. I typically make a, a video a week, and then do a bunch of other stuff as well. So you, were you and Matt? You were both editors in chief at at one yeah. point. So and, I was. So do you guys I, just cycle through that? Like, what's the story um, there? Yeah, it it varies. Like, uh, you know, what happened with me? I was I became editor in two thousand, and then um, in two thousand seven. Uh, what had happened, we were launching uh, Reason TV, our video platform, and there wasn't anybody quite a, in charge of it or anything, and so it was kind of slow getting off the uh, drawing board. As, and, you know, we were, the people who were there were, you know, figuring out a technology at the time, which was pretty new, streaming video, like both producing it and then kind of getting it online and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but what happened was that Matt, who had worked at Reason for a while and then gone to the L.A. Times, he had taken a book leave, and when he was supposed to, to write a book about John McCain, and then um, this was in late, I guess, 2007, he went back to the L.A. Times, and they kind of stiffed him. They had said they were going to give him a column and you know, promote him and stuff, and they were kind of like, hey, uh, yeah, you know, we don't, we're not really going to do that. And so I got in touch with him, and I basically said, why don't you come back to Reason, and you run the print magazine. He loves you know, print and everything. And I would uh, take over the uh, the website and the video platform. And so we did that. And then Matt was editor, I think, for like about seven years or eight years. And then he, um, uh, he you know, gave that up. And Catherine Manga Ward uh, became the editor. And then a couple of years in, like 2018, I, you know, I wanted to uh, stop managing people and kind of like do my own thing more. And so I stepped down and then Catherine became the editor-in-chief of our entire journalism division. So she oversees the video platform, the website, and the uh, the print magazine. And how has she been as a leader? Has she been tyrannical? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I'm afraid to even talk about it. I'm blinking my eyes. Uh, people can't see this. I'm blinking my eyes and making SOS, you know, messages to you. No, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's all been good. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. And every, you know, every editor-in-chief is, of course, different. And has different kind of hobby horses and things, but then it's also the time, you know, that you're where you are, like changes. And you know, I think about this a lot. Um, you know, five years ago, seven years ago, maybe I guess now, like 2015, in a lot of ways was like a big, you know, it seemed like a high water mark for the, you know, what Matt and I coined the term the libertarian moment uh, in 2007 or 2008, like at that. Mm-hmm kind of the nadir of the economic crisis when everything was getting kind of hairy. And we were like, no, this is, you know, there is an ongoing kind of libertarian moment, which is about, you know, mass individualization and about the ability of of decentralized power and knowledge and innovation. And it's going to come roaring back just like, you know, the 70s became very libertarian, even as, you know, the economy was kind of tanking. And it was really going according to plan. You know, you were part of this. Uh, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, uh, you know, a, a kind of wave of sometimes Tea Party, but more libertarian or libertarian-ish mm-hmm. Congress people. Uh, you know, a, a sense in the culture that people wanted more freedom and you know less you know regulation of stuff. And um, you know that all kind of crashed with Trump. And I think with this turn, which we're in now, like a really sour attitude towards big tech, uh, towards the internet, um, you know, uh, you know, the COVID coming on, 
Um, so, um, uh, you know, that's, that's a roundabout way of saying, you know, I, you know, I was lucky to take over in 2000 because it was like, at that point, um, you know, communism was dead and we knew it wasn't coming back. Um, you know, uh, big government, uh, Bill Clinton, you know, had declared the era of big government was over. There were actual, you know, kind of, uh, at least back of the envelope surpluses for the last couple of years of his uh, thing. It's, you know, it seemed like we were, and, you know, the, the web and, you know, the internet had become a big thing. It was a really exciting moment. And that, you know, you, you could do a lot with that. It was like libertarians were winning. People didn't care about politics because we were too busy living our lives with all of this new technology and all of this new innovation and lifestyle as well as, you know, business and travel and technology. You know, and that all came to a, a screeching halt in 2001. And it took a while to come back. And then that stopped. And, you know, I think we're building back towards the libertarian moment. I was happy to see just in the past couple of weeks several people in places like the uh, Wall Street Journal and the, uh, I guess, Washington Post or uh, Reuters or something talking about the libertarian moment. Like there's moments because people are getting fed up, uh, you know, and, and one of the outgrowths of COVID is that, you know, uh, the government, you know, acted poorly, uh, you know, and it's, it's not just that they made bad decisions. They made really stupid decisions and then kind of lied about it. And they continue to insist that they will choose and they will determine things. And, you know, people are pushing back against that. And do you think people will will differentiate, say, the libertarian position from the more, uh, you know, Trumpian position on this kind of stuff? Like there's. On the, on the more Trump side, there's like a, a, a sense of a need for a strong leader um, who's going to stand up to... Right. I alone can fix this. Yeah, like, right? and, yeah, and libertarians obviously are not pushing for any of that. We're not right. saying, hey, um, you know, let's replace Biden with a strong nationalist who's going right. to, you know, stand up to the left and yeah. destroy them or whatever. Right. So are people, do you think, able to differentiate there and say like hey um the trump thing didn't really work and right. the biden thing doesn't really work and uh, the, the whole fauci thing's not really working great yeah um it, it's time to look at decentralization and localism right. and uh yeah. federalism even and yeah more experiment like small scale in, like uh, our, experimentation do you think and we're going to move back in that direction or do you yeah. think it's, or do you think it's uh like uh trump comes back and he runs and and he wins and he says now i'm just gonna you know install my people who will just right. say the opposite thing well the, the one thing we know for before. sure trump trump won't run he may stand for office again but i mean he could he could barely walk when he left the white house and I say this not to be mean, but like he's an old, out of shape guy, um, and I, I don't think he's going to be. I don't think he's going to be the Republican nominee. I don't. I don't know if well, he's going to make a stand for it. Biden's, yep. Biden's Biden, probably worse condition than, than Trump, right? Yeah, or I mean, similar. I mean, yeah, no, no, and you know, and this is part of it. I think you know what libertarians can do. First off, is you know, without being um, kind of glib about it or coy. Uh, you know, kind of point to the fact that, you know, Biden, Matt actually had a problem about this recently, which was very good. Biden is essentially doing Trump's immigration policy. Um, not a lot mm -hmm. of change there, but it's slightly yep. different rhetoric. Uh, you know, he's doing his trade. The trade policy is certainly the same, you know, like yep. where, you know, nobody's opened that up. All of the Buy America provisions, you know, and, and Build Back Better and infrastructure, these are all from, you know, Trump, who got them from Obama, who got them from Bush. 
Um, you know, there's a lot that we can talk about. You know, everybody let knows. Me add, let me add, uh, Biden is doing Trump's civil asset forfeiture policy, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's oh, and Jeff, Jeff it's, Sessions put that in place and Biden yeah. has kept it in place. It, yeah. And like, again, not not in a spirit of like got you or anything, but, you know, like large numbers of people think that the country is headed in the wrong direction. And they, you know, and they did under Trump. Uh, most, you know, also under Obama. And what we need to do is to point out, like, we understand that. And it is, you know, like, if you feel that way, here are policies and mindsets and attitudes that are different than what we've been getting. Um, you know, and that's the conversation. And that's what reason does. You know, we're not, uh, we talk a lot about politics and policy, especially, but we're not activists. I mean, that's, you know, you do stuff like that, but we're we're trying to set the table for these conversations about like, you know, if you think if you think big tech is terrible now, you know, just wait until Nancy Pelosi and you know, Mitch McConnell are in charge of it. Um, if you think supply chains are screwed up now, like, you know, let's talk about free trade and let's talk about deregulating certain sectors so that the type of innovation we take for granted, uh, you know, or have taken for granted in the past continues. Um, you know, we got a, we got a good story to tell. Um, and I think the the main thing is like I, you know what what bothers me is that I think a lot of libertarians now are kind of either um, you know they they recognize that like okay you know you're either with the Democrats or the Republicans if you want to get into office quickly a lot of people have kind of tried to turn Trump into some kind of libertarian and I just I, I don't really see that yeah he's not and I I did a tweet thread on this. Um, mm pointing out how unlibertarian Trump was. Yeah. Um, and is. Let's go to um, let's go to a few more callers and, and see if we can work these through. Jack. Yeah, uh, first time, long time. Um, <laughs> well not a hold on, not a long time, Jack. Well, it's, it's only the well, second both episode. episodes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was wondering, you know, out of the fifty states um, you know, from what you've seen, you know, obviously you've seen Michigan and that's not libertarian at all. But which one do you think currently is the most libertarian? And then can I get you guys' uh, predictions for the uh, big game on Sunday? Oh, yeah. I, and I got to tell you, just to talk about the Super Bowl real quick, you know, so you got uh, what the Rams versus the Bengals. I've lived in L.A. and I've lived in, uh, you know, the Cincinnati area. So. I uh, I don't know who to root against, but uh, I think it should be a pretty good game. Yeah, I want, gonna... I want the Bengals to win just because they are a hard luck franchise. Although they also got one of the you know the most egregious stadium deals. This has got to be fifteen years ago, maybe more. Uh, that was so bad, and like they soaked up. They got it ended up costing like almost a billion dollars to build a stadium and a practice facility on the riverfront. And they were so bad. There was a guy, this was a great move by a city councilman or a county, whatever, um, that they, they get everything from the stadium. You know, they get, they get the parking receipts, they get the concessions, and they pay, you know, like a couple hundred bucks or something in rent. And he looked at the contract, and part of the contract was is that the, the Bengals agreed to field a competitive team. And he brought a lawsuit against them that was working through the courts because they at that point they hadn't been in the playoffs. They hadn't had like a winning season in, in years. And then unfortunately they got into the playoffs that year and so it ended. But it would have been a great kind of screw you. But I don't know. 
I don't know. I I don't really have a dog in in that fight. Um, Are you a, a Lions fan? Do you, you have know, to be a Lions I fan? I, I wish I could be. I mean, I I kind of feel bad. I didn't as a kid. I didn't really watch much football. <laughs> um, I I went to Michigan, so that obviously yep. got me into football. And I've been a, a huge Michigan well, second, fan. Oh, second tier football, right? Uh, uh, kind of doormat uh, division uh, of the Big Ten. Yeah. All right, all right. Oh, we come won. on. <laughs> so so uh, we, we beat your uh, beloved Ohio State yeah, yeah, no. last year. So, it didn't get to that far, though, right? So, um, so you know, I was never much of a football guy growing up. I watched basketball. Um, and I was a Detroit Pistons guy. I watched yeah. a lot of NBA basketball, but... When I when I went to college, obviously you go to Michigan, you're going to watch Michigan football. I became a yeah. Michigan football fan. I have tried for years to get into professional football, but I obviously want to root for the Lions. I want to root for you know a Michigan team, right. but they've never given me the chance to root for yeah. them. Really, like it just it it's created such a such a dilemma. I want to have like an opportunity to watch uh, a really good team, and and uh, we just. We've had some bad luck uh, for well, a while. Well, that's the curse that of Bobby around. Lane, right? I mean, it goes so, back to the 50s or something. So I, I hope that turns around. I, I will say, on, um, you know, Michigan, when you say uh, what's the most libertarian state, Michigan has some, um, some libertarian areas. I would say that the community I represented had a lot of libertarianism and a, a small L libertarianism. Um, I was very openly libertarian in my area, uh, Grand Rapids area is the second. It's the second largest city in the state, and um, you know the second largest metro area, obviously in the state as well. And we had quite a bit of small L libertarianism, and they'd elect me year after year. And I sure wasn't secretive about my my views, my positions, or um, you know, or or about libertarianism. So I think that Michigan has a lot of potential, actually, as a state to be a libertarian state, and. And on the east side of the state, um, there, there's a, a large community of black Americans who I think do not um, often feel well, well represented by the Democratic Party. And there is an opportunity, I think, for many of them to come over to libertarianism because we care about criminal justice reform, because we care about um, issues like civil asset forfeiture and um and equal treatment under the law. So there's there are there are a lot of things um, that libertarians have to offer people. So I think the state of Michigan actually is a, a place where there's some potential. But I would look if I'm looking around the country and thinking about you know what is a libertarian state. It's not necessarily going to be the one that um, stereotypically is, is thought of. I mean, some people think of New Hampshire as very libertarian. Um, uh, I don't know. It's like uh, it has, you know, it's not a, a very big state, obviously, and they've had libertarians who had some success at the local level, but you don't really have, um, I think, strong libertarian tendencies throughout the general populace there. Um, you know, I don't want to speak for, obviously, all the people of New Hampshire, but they've obviously been experimenting there for a for some time trying to bring libertarianism to the state, and, and I don't think they've they've quite gotten there. I think there are states like Utah that have a lot of potential because of the culture. Um, I think the, you know, the, the, the culture imbued in Mormonism, I think, could be um, 
uh, very conducive to libertarianism. You know, the the idea of just uh, wanting to have the government not meddling in your life, um, respect for others, respect for community, uh, tolerance of people who are different from you. I think those are the kind of qualities. There's a modesty yeah. there. I, I think a lot of that, um, human cooperation, they have a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, sympathy toward immigrants in uh, Utah and um, and concern for things like the environment, which it, it doesn't, just because you're concerned about the environment doesn't, you have to, doesn't mean you have to believe in some kind of big government um, solution to all of it. So I think those are all libertarian values. And uh, and that's that's a state I think that that could move in our direction. Yeah, I I uh, agree with all of that. And you know, places like New Hampshire definitely have a, a certain type of tradition. Utah, Wyoming, I hear about a lot. I was disappointed when I lived in Texas. I moved there from California, from LA, and I thought it was going to be more uh, kind of individualist and whatnot. And that was a place where I saw a kind of big government conservative versus big government liberal. Um, but I, you know, and uh, this came up in a, in a slightly different context on a recent Reason Roundtable podcast or Monday kind of, uh, you know, free for all with Matt Welch, Catherine Mangaward and Peter Suderman that I participate in. And I was making a pitch for New York City. Um, yeah, I've lived in upstate New York. I've lived in Buffalo, which is not very libertarian. But New York City, in a profound way, is the most regulated place in America and, you know, one of the most regular places in the world. There is a law about everything, um, you know, et cetera. But it's also true that you can kind of live pretty much however you want. And so I've been thinking more and more about libertarianism is not just a question of like, okay, what are the laws on the books or, um, you know, you know, the arrest rates or something like that, or even the tax rate. It's, It's like, can people you know, create the world that they want to live in? Can they have the job and create the, the job that they want to live in? Can they have the sort of family they want, et cetera? And New York City is, you know, absolutely, you know, over-regulated, over-policed, you know, over-legislated. But it's also an incredibly free place where you just meet people who are living their lives the way they want to. And I think... That's the type of one thing that we can look for all over the country and find uh, elements of that. And that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good way of thinking about things. Well, it's the most diverse city on the planet. I mean, in terms yeah. of uh, the I guess people so, there. Yeah, yeah the yeah, people yeah. there, the different, yeah. um, uh, whether it's ethnic background or, or lifestyles or, yeah. you know, the, the choices people make. It's a very diverse city. You can walk around yeah. into different neighborhoods and see all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so let's go to um, let's go to our next caller. Andy, you're on. Yeah, hi, Justin. Um, hi, Andy, can, can can you hear me? I yep. tried to unmute. Great, can hear you. great. Um, um, well, thank you for having me on, and I also want to say hi to Nick, whom I hope to be seeing in Nashville in a, a couple months. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Reasons having a, an event there. Uh, Justin, my question for you relates to a broken amendment process, but it's not the one you talked about in your last episode. It's the Article 5 uh, process for amending the Constitution. Um, Now, there's no reason you would remember this, but the one time we actually met, um, I asked you if uh, you had thought about trying to set up a formal process in the House for counting uh, state applications for a uh, uh, an Article 5 uh, 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 convention. 
And you said no uh, for two reasons. One, you weren't on the uh, uh, the Judiciary Committee, uh, but also you had doubts about the merits of a Article 5 convention. So my question is whether you've given any further thought to this issue, because uh, for me, it's an issue that I think you could really make a difference on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Andy. So I'm still against the idea of amending the Constitution through a convention. I, I think that there is too much of a risk of this kind of thing becoming a pattern and doing more damage to our Constitution than, um, than benefit. Yeah, there are problems with the Constitution that, that could be addressed, but I'm really reluctant to open it up at all. Um, there are like only a few circumstances, and then I think that uh, it's probably actually better if it goes through a legislative process first um, and not through a convention. I worry about what's happened in Michigan. We have in Michigan a constitution that is very easy to amend. And as a result, our constitution is total crap. I mean, it, it is a worthless, utterly worthless constitution because it doesn't actually contain any, you know, basic statement of principles. Um, it's not the, essentially the basic law of the state. It's become um, very specific things that interest groups have inserted year after year to the point where it's just another form of, you know, standard legislation that is hard to remove, easy to easy to adopt and then difficult to remove. And I am worried about doing that to our Constitution, uh, because when you look at constitutions around the world, and I've spent some time looking at other countries' constitutions, they are really bad. They, they are not the kinds of constitutions uh, we would want. And I think it's almost a miracle that we have the Constitution that we have. You know, we don't do a good enough job following it. Um, we, uh, you know, we people routinely ignore it. On the other hand, if people told me, you know, if people say to me, which they do, well, what's the point of the Constitution if it's not actually restraining the government the way it's supposed to? I think it still does restrain the government in many respects. It's, it's not obviously a perfect restraint. But I think it is beneficial that there's there are things written down that I can point to as a member of Congress when I served in Congress and say, this is the law, this is the way it's supposed to work. I think it's helpful to have that on your side. And I do worry about having a constitution that instead of being a short, concise, simple document, a simple statement of, of principles and basic law, um, becomes something that's very long, um, very specific, and... Um, is only there to, to meet the needs of the circumstances. And, and I, I do worry about that. So I, I understand the arguments on the other side, but that, that's my basic position on it. Well, just to be clear, um, my position is that there should only ever be one Article 5 convention. And the only topic at that Article 5 convention should be how best to amend Article 5. Because um, I think that, you know, y yes, it's because it's so difficult to amend the Constitution now, in a sort of a paradox, it has become too easy for the courts and Congress to amend the Constitution. Um, and I, I throw the question out to Nick. Nick has frequently talked about needing a reset for the country hmm. here in the 21st century. Well, Article 5 is the reset button in both a, you know, a literal and, and figurative sense. Uh, you know, 
good luck with it. I and I, I don't mean that uh, dismissively. It's like, um, you know, maybe, maybe. Okay. Well, thank you both. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Appreciate thanks. the call. I will go to um, go to Leslie here. All right, Leslie, you're on. Hi, Nick. Hi, Justin. This is a real treat. Um, two of my favorite people. Nick, thank you for repping Gen Z so well on uh, on the Reason Roundtable. Appreciate that. Okay. And, uh, Nick, and are Justin, you in Gen Z? I, I am. Uh, yeah, no, I am not Gen Z. Okay, sure. that's right. I'm, I, I'm a boomer. I'm a, I'm a. I was born in the second to last year of the baby boom. You're, you're not even Gen X, huh? No. Although you know, this is all complicated because Gen X, it's in its original iteration, actually was basically the second half of the baby boom. Then it was 1960 to 1970, et cetera. But now it's 65 to because 80. Because in some ways, I feel like you embody. I'm sorry, um, Leslie, to put yeah. in here. In some ways, I feel like you embody Gen X. Like there's some ways in which your your ethos or whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the stuff I never, you know, want to give Gen X the time of day because that's like Matt and uh, Jesse Walker and Brian Doherty and some of my colleagues. But, you know, what was great about Gen X is, you know, it was the slacker generation. They were disaffected. I mean, it was essentially, you know, kind of like punk related to punk, very DIY, um, kind of just like, you know, let's just get on with things and do them as best we can. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, positive uh, stuff coming out of that. All right, Leslie, and, what do you and, got for us? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and I'm, I'm appalled at my, uh, I guess my nerves uh, made me plow Gen Z. Uh, anyway, um, uh, Justin, one of my favorite top two or three favorite things about Twitter is, uh, when, uh, somebody accuses you of, of, uh, being critical only of uh, President Biden or Democrats, and you bring the receipts, and it makes me giggle every time, and I love it. Uh, and thank you, and uh, thanks. thanks, guys. Have a great evening. Thanks thank so you, much. Leslie. I appreciate it. It is, uh, you know, it's amazing when you do that kind of stuff, and it's, um, you know, yeah, I, I don't understand people who really think like you can only be for or against, you know, Democrats or Republicans, and. That's a mindset that, you know, we need to, you know, really kind of understand and dismantle. I think um, there's a I think there's a couple things at work when at least a couple, there might be more yeah. when people make those kinds of accusations. Um, I think part of it is projection. Um, I that they themselves have a bias that they are projecting onto me. Um, they can't relate to the idea that someone would be consistent across several years in different administrations. Um, since they can't relate to it themselves, they are they are going to come after me and say, look, you're a hypocrite. Um, they won't acknowledge their own hypocrisy, but they also, they, they have it. I mean, the, the, quite often the people who are calling me out, if you look at their own account, they were one-sided in their criticism. They were the ones who were only criticizing Trump and not criticizing Biden. Um, I've had um, tweets where I tweet the exact same thing under Trump <laughs> and under Biden, and the responses are so different. Yeah. So I think part of it is projection. Another part of it is just a, a distrust of politicians mm -hmm. that it couldn't be possible that someone... 
um, who holds particular viewpoints. And there are still people online who maybe view me as coming from the right or, or whatever because I was a former Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't really relate to the idea that I might have been consistent on things and would be critical of um, the right just as I was critical of the left. So I think there's there's all of that going on. And and I, you know, I... Uh, I enjoy when someone puts out a good uh, tweet coming after me. I can pull up the receipts and and uh, and show them the consistency because I think it's important. It's it's not really so much um, important for me, but I think it's important for society to see that someone can be in office and be consistent yeah. and do the right thing. Um, we're not everyone in office has to be uh, a total hypocrite and a jerk um, and and biased all. Um, all at the same time. So, like, you know, um, I, I, I like to set an example with that stuff. Can I ask you uh, what might be a, a slightly uncomfortable question related to this? Uh, I've been asked every uncomfortable question in the world. So, you know, you know, when I, I know, um, you know, the, the people that you either came into Congress with or worked with in Congress, uh, you, you talked very movingly about Walter Jones, who died yeah. a few years ago and who was an interesting, you know, had an interesting progression, you know, politically. Um, and, um, you know, as somebody who I hope his example, particularly about, uh, you know, uh, of war and, and foreign policy is, is remembered and kind of taught. Uh, but, you know, people like Tom Massey and people like Rand Paul, you know, you guys were, you cut a very different figure. And it seems like you stayed in a, you know, for lack of a better term, principled state. I don't think you were ever, you know, extreme or anything like that. But they seem to have become more Republican over the years, whereas you stayed still, and that meant that the Republican Party pulled away from you. What was it like? I mean, or do, is, do you think that's accurate? And, um, you know, what what goes into the calculation of saying, you know, there's certain things you, you you compromise on or you give away because they don't matter that much and it helps you with the next thing. But how do you draw a line between, you know, politicking and, you know, staying true to what you, uh, you know, what you came in to do in office? Yeah, I think that a lot of that is true. Um, and and first, I want to say, you know, Walter Jones was um, an important figure in my life, an important figure mm-hmm as as a congressman in my time in Congress. I mean, here's a guy who voted for um, the Iraq War. He was the guy who came up with um, yeah. Freedom Prize. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, he yeah. said uh, the French aren't helping us. We're going to call them Freedom Prize from right. now on. And he later came to regret it so much. He came to regret what he had um, how he had voted and, mm-hmm. and how he'd felt at that time. Um, and he used to tell us every day how how horrible he felt about all that. And he didn't know if God would forgive him for this mm-hmm. um, for this stuff. And we, we would always tell him, Walter, you're a good man. You know, God will forgive you. And um, you've done everything in your power since then to, to write the wrong you know to you feel like you made a mistake back then and there's no one who's more active in congress trying to push back on endless wars um than walter jones you know and and making sure that 
the executive is kept in check and the Congress reasserts its authority the way it's supposed to and, and all the rest. So, you know, it, uh, you know, God bless Walter Jones. He passed away actually um, February 10 um, of 2019 uh, on his birthday. So, uh, you know, uh, tomorrow, essentially, uh, three yeah. years ago. And I don't know that he when he passed away i don't know that i've had as much emotion about someone who's not a relative not a family mm-hmm. member passing away in my life um i was you know it was really hard um yeah. because i had a friend and a colleague who was there with me through it all and um he didn't hold back on anything he didn't hold back on trump he didn't hold back on what he believed was right and uh, put himself on the line a lot of times and took a lot of heat and 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 consistently won despite all the heat he took you know i i think what happened to a lot of my colleagues around um the time of trump is they they made a calculated decision that if they didn't go with the flow they would be out mm-hmm. and um and i don't think like when you look at some of them uh, take Thomas, you know, I don't think that he went out, a, went out on a limb to praise Donald Trump or anything like that. It was more of yeah. a, it, it was more of a, like, um, look, I'm just going to like not talk about him. I'm just going to avoid it. Um, to the extent he could say something supportive, he would say something supportive about a policy, um, without being, you know, overtly supportive of the president. I don't think he particularly liked um, the president, I'll let him speak for himself, but like that's that was my impression um, that he didn't particularly like Donald Trump, and Donald Trump came after him. Yeah, know? yeah, no, so, he, like, there, was, there a, was that whole time where yeah, he like called but, him and lashed at him. But we have like uh, we just had a different approach to it. Like I don't yeah. have um, the I don't have that ability to just keep my mouth shut when a guy is coming after my friends and colleagues um when when donald trump came and and tried to oust mark sanford who's a very good libertarian um republican member of congress but but on the libertarian side of things a very good ally when he came after him i felt like you had to stand up for this guy and you had to take a stand and when he when donald trump did things that i thought were uh, grotesquely unlibertarian. I think that you have to take a stand. You have to stand up and say, no, this isn't okay. I, I don't think you can just say, well, I've got to ride this one out mm-hmm. until he's gone. Um, and you have, uh, you know, Senator Paul, who I think was even more overtly supportive of Donald Trump. And right. he started out the opposite way. You know, yeah, he started sorry. out as, as quite anti Trump. I mean, you, you guys might remember the debates. Mm-hmm. He was not having it with yeah. Donald Trump. No. Um, I, I even had... He, in one of the debates, he pointed out, and it was really masterful because it was clear Trump didn't understand that the uh, PPP was an attempt to hem in China. Like, he obviously thought China right. was part of it. And Rand Paul kind of, you know, in a very understated but, you know, kind of acid way, kind of pointed that out. It was very good. Yeah, and I, I just think that they believe my approach was naive. Um, And I don't agree with that. I think that, um, and it's obvious I don't agree with it. I I took the approach I took. I think it's a mistake 
to have Donald Trump associated with libertarianism because mm-hmm. Donald Trump is is first of all he's not libertarian. Right. Second of all, even if he were libertarian, he'd be the worst messenger you could have for libertarianism. Um, a guy who you know ticks off half the population and makes libertarians seem totally unlikable and and um, and hostile and angry and yeah. all that. Like this is like exactly the worst messenger for libertarianism. But that's on top of the fact that he wasn't libertarian. Right. Like they they would talk about Donald Trump. You know, people, my colleagues, talk about Donald Trump ending the wars. So, oh. Thank you, Donald Trump, for ending the wars. But he didn't end any wars. He ended zero wars as president and expanded them, actually. The Afghanistan war expanded under Donald Trump. It didn't decrease. It expanded. More bombs were dropped than ever in Afghanistan while Donald Trump was president. He, he extended the whole war. So, um, And you saw the war also expand into other countries like Somalia and in Yemen. So... Um, a lot of uh, you know war atrocities happened under Donald Trump. Um, so even if you're looking yep. at it, even if someone wanted to say, "Oh, uh, Donald was Donald Trump was at least libertarian on the war stuff," no, he wasn't. Right. He wasn't libertarian. His rhetoric didn't match what was actually happening um, in the air and on the ground. So, um, you know, I think you have to take a stand. Uh, at the end of the day, if you want people to come to libertarianism. You can't create a hostile environment. Right. And by embracing Donald Trump, the libertarians who do embrace Donald Trump, as some of them have done, they create a bad impression for libertarianism that I think then makes it, um, it it makes libertarianism untenable as a philosophy because libertarianism or, or liberty more properly thrives in a system of high levels of trust. Right. It doesn't really thrive in a system of, of tension and anger and animosity. Like right. that that type of system leads you to authoritarianism. If everyone's yeah, if everyone's angry at if yeah. I think that my neighbor's gonna steal from me, if I think my yeah. neighbor is going to to attack me, if I think that my neighbor thinks I'm the devil or I'm gonna hurt them or whatever um, or, you know, if everyone's afraid of each other, that's not an environment for liberty or libertarianism. That's an environment yeah. for tyranny, for for authoritarianism. Yeah, for gangsterism. And, yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I I, um, I took the stand that I did, and, and I do not feel uh, bad about it at all. I feel like it was the right stand. And, and at the end of the day, look at where the Republican Party is now. It's not, it hasn't yeah. been made... It wasn't made more libertarian by coddling Trump. It's been made less libertarian. Yeah, for sure. Can I ask, you know, talking about the Republican Party, obviously you left it, um, which is pretty great. And it's like, you know, it's got to be kind of phenomenal to be the first and quite possibly the only, I hope not, libertarian member of Congress, you know, in history. I won't be the only one, no. Yeah, I hope not. But, you know, with the Republican Party, um, and this is also something that I see with, uh, you know, people like Massey and Paul. And, you know, Rand Paul, I mean, we had reason. I, you know, I was really super impressed by him. And I still remain, you know, somewhat impressed by him. But he seemed like he was going to be a very high-level agent of change in kind of politics. But getting away from him, per se, but, you know, the Republican Party has become so hostile to the idea of immigration, including legal immigration. Like that, you don't even hear that anymore. Where people would be like, "Well, I'm in favor of immigration, just legal immigration," 
You know, it's not even that anymore. And right. what what's going on there? Um, you know, and how does that change? Because it's not like the Democratic Party isn't isn't great on immigration. They have all their own hangups. But it seems to me that you know we're in a country where you know the fertility rates are declining. You know, primarily because women and everybody has more options. So you know, it's it's just the fact that as you have more options, you have fewer kids, um, et cetera. But and it's not even just like we need more people to sustain the economy. It's like we need more and new people in order to have an interesting world and like to create the you know have the mix necessary to create the next great big things. But you know what what happened to the Republican Party? I think we may have talked about this, but you know there's that um, debate in 1980 between George H. W. Bush and Ronald Reagan where they're still running for the Republican nomination in Houston, and they are arguing about who will do more to help illegal immigrants become part of America. Uh, you know, it's in, and people can Google this. It's like it's like from a man in the high castle, different timeline or something. You know, it's like right. it, it's yeah, unimaginable. And now it's you know, like what what happened to the Republican Party? I mean, is it the the idea that it is a white party? And I don't mean that necessarily in strictly racial terms, but it does not like difference. It does not like new things. It does, you know, it doesn't like people who may or may not look like that. I, I mean, like, what's going on? You know, I don't think it's it's necessarily any of that stuff. There's certainly that aspect within, within the Republican Party that there are, um, you know, sort of there's some aspect of, you know, people who just don't trust people who don't look like them. Um, but I don't think that's broadly speaking the case. Uh, you know, I've, I've been around a lot of Republicans. Um, I, I don't think that most Republicans have that sentiment. I think that Donald Trump tried to drive that up quite a bit. Um, but there are also, you know, there are Hispanic Americans who are now mm -hmm. voting Republican in, in greater yeah. numbers. So I don't think you can just chalk it up to, um, you know, like uh, some kind of, necessarily ethnic issue as much right. as it is uh, like this is our place and someone else is coming in i'm not sure it's like yeah. based on i'm not sure it's like race-based or anything right. like that for the for the vast majority of people um so you know i just think it's a it's like a it's like a protectionist mm -hmm. um nationalist it's sort of like the big government sort of republicanism that Trump brought. It's it's not um, it's not based on uh, ethnicity so much as it's based on like bad economics um, mm -hmm. and a belief that people who come from the outside are not actually adding to right. the the wealth of our country. They are just taking from our country um, and and. Impoverishing, impoverishing us, and um, and then they're going and they're voting in the Democratic Party allegedly. Right. Like that's the allegation, yeah. right? And so they maybe view it as a uh, an election effort by Democrats to get more voters in here, so we right. can uh, so we can um, you know boost our numbers. And then there's this increasing hostility between Republicans and um, the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. and and um, you know business groups. It's like they uh, they caught up to libertarians on that stuff because libertarians have always been um, hostile to business groups in many ways because of cor corporate welfare and cronyism and other things. The Republicans are hostile for different reasons because um, you know 
there's within the business community a desire to bring in people who are from other countries to help um, you know the economic situation here but um, but yeah so I think it's a, it's a combination of things but I think it's mostly economics based and, and nationalist and populist based yeah. and, and not so much based on um, any racial or ethnic can I uh, if, to follow up on uh, kind of immigration questions your your parents were both immigrants right yeah that's right yeah. my dad was a refugee too yeah so you know how did they are, are they still alive or yeah yep, okay. they're both still alive yeah. so you know what is their attitude You're probably towards... listening right now oh okay that would be um, what is what's their kind of attitude or conception of America when I think about this you know, my, so my grandparents all emigrated here in the mid-19-teens, and, you know, I never really had conversations with my Italian grandparents because they never spoke English and I didn't speak Italian. Um, but, you know, so I don't know what they thought about America. I mean, obviously, they preferred it to where they were from because they didn't go back. And one thing that's a kind of under, um, kind of uh, observed fact is that during the kind of great European migration from Europe to America, you know, 1880 to 1920 or thereabouts, somewhere between 25% to 40% of immigrants actually went back to the old country because they just didn't like mm-hmm. it. But um, I don't, you know, like, what, how do your parents see America? And like, you know, is that a, is that an identity that more people should be kind of aping, you know? Yeah, they, I mean, they loved America. And and love America today. Yeah. You know, it's just when when I was a kid, they would tell me how great this country is. Uh, my dad, especially because he was a refugee, and mm. feels like in many respects he was saved by America. You know, like um, he had a life of of extreme poverty. Uh, he was literally homeless. Mm. You know, he was sir, he was a refugee over in Palestine, moved around, was homeless, um, they'd moved from place to place, and um, and he was even poor for a Palestinian, I mean, right. to show you how, like, poor he was. So, coming here was um, a real saving grace for him, like, it, it was um, a gift from God that he could come to this country and start a new life, even though it wasn't easy um, you know, he faced challenges, of course, and he came with nothing. So, uh, but because of the kind of opportunity we have in this country, someone like him can come to the United States and make a living for themselves and and have a family and be successful. And successful doesn't mean um, you have to be, you know, uh, wildly wealthy or anything. It just means that you can provide for your family and you don't have right. to... Um, depend on the the government um, doing this or that for you or having connections to the right people, which is often the case in other countries, you know, if you're connected to this official or that official or whatever, or have the right last name or the right religion, you can get by in it, and if you don't, you can't. In this country, it doesn't matter. You you could have a religion that's different, you could have a background that's different from everyone else, and, and you have an opportunity. And I think people sometimes, when you know, when they hear this stuff, they say, well, you know, they also know an immigrant who didn't have the same fortune mm-hmm. and same luck. That's true. There are people who come and they don't have uh, the same fortune. But this is one of the only places on Earth, maybe the only place mm-hmm. on Earth, where someone can come and do that and where there is often a, a chance of success. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
when I was a kid, I would hear my dad talk about this and my mom um, about how great this country is and what opportunities we have. And it really um, in, instilled in me a deep desire to uh, to learn more about America, to mm-hmm. give back to America. I mean, I think that deep down, subconsciously, uh, one of the reasons I ultimately ended up being in Congress was because of these stories as a child. Mm-hmm. Um knowing that America had given our family so much and uh, I had an opportunity now to give back and keep that dream alive for other people. Mm. And I think actually there are sometimes people who um, in politics who have come here with immigrant stories who I think are framing things the wrong way, who are getting into politics and they're saying, um, instead of saying isn't it wonderful that this country has been so great that it gave me this opportunity mm-hmm. to be here and um, and I want to give back and I love this country? There are some people who come here and they say, um, this country has been so hostile to people like me for so long and I'm proving to them that I can overcome it and, mm-hmm. you know, screw you guys, now I'm in charge. And that is completely the wrong message, in my opinion, if you come from an immigrant family and you're, you're going into political office. And this is the kind of, that's the kind of message, I think, that causes a lot of anxiety for many Americans, where there's, there is some backlash, and then you get Trumpism that comes along yeah. and takes advantage of that. I think that those of us who come here from these immigrant backgrounds um, need to, um, you know, be honest about what has happened, um, how difficult it was for our our ancestors in the old country, yeah. and how wonderful it is here, despite all the problems. There are problems right. here. But, man, I would take living here any day over living in the old country. Um, yeah. and, and so would my parents, who came here themselves. You know, do you think, um, this is a question that I've been wrestling with for a long time, uh, you know, and I, and I think it reflects, you know, issues in the country. Um, I, I definitely grew up, uh, particularly given my age and my family background, in, in that kind of century when America started defining itself as a nation of immigrants. And ironically, it started doing that in the 20s when it shut the, the borders, um, you know, and it, you know, and then they really didn't open up again until 1965. Um, but you know, John F. Kennedy in 1958 wrote a book or had somebody ghostwrite a book for him called "A Nation of Immigrants," and it was kind of the apex of this idea that in the 20th century, the way we defined America was it was a melting pot, and it included people from Europe and all over the world, and blacks even migrating from the South outward throughout, you know, out of the South and into other parts of the country. But we were a nation of immigrants. And that was, that's what made us great, is that, you know, we could do that. In the 19th century, it was different. It was, you know, we were the uh, kind of ancestors or the inheritors of a revolutionary creed of, you know, uh, uh, li- liberty and uh, individualism and whatnot. We're struggling. It seems to me we're struggling with a broad national character or identity mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't want it to be super detailed or strict because then you get into kind of like, oh, you, you've got to be b- born here. You know, it's like a German Nazi, like blood and soil thing where you, you know, you have to, you know, show, you know, that you've been on the same property for a long time or anything. But, you know, what what are do you have any idea of like what are kind of narratives, you know, a kind of meta narrative, a large 
national myth uh, that is not bullshit and that doesn't sugarcoat everything, but also gives you know people here like a common identity that allows us to relax a little bit and trust each other and kind of work you know work into the future rather than start you know, being suspicious of everybody and not trusting everybody. And then, you know, what happens, you were talking about this, it's totally right, that in in low trust societies, you know, people just start ripping everybody off because they know, you know, it's just you're trying to get as much you can before everything goes uh, goes dark. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is there a, you know, is there a, a story that we can tell or a national myth that is going to, you know, make us feel good about being American again and, you know, maybe help us generate the next you know, great American century. Well, I think it's I think it's increasingly difficult because the the two large parties in politics that dominate um, social media discussions, that dominate um, sort of activism generally, political activism. I don't think they represent a majority of Americans, but right. they do tend to dominate the conversations. And as a result, even traditional media, um, you know, CNN, yep. MSNBC, Fox News, they sort of parrot what what they're seeing on social media. Um, I think with the the two old parties are increasingly nationalistic, both of the parties, and um, have moved away from this idea that um, America is a place where people can you know make decisions for their own lives and um, live free and 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 tolerate other lifestyles and, and people who are different from them. Increasingly, what you're seeing is the left um, emphasizing this idea of um, equity rather than equality before the law, Um, this idea that uh, the government needs to constantly intervene to to correct everything that's wrong and that only some central planner, only some, some, you know, bureaucrats in a room somewhere or, you know, the president in his cabinet can decide um, what is the right outcome for everyone? And we have to put we have to put it in a, a few people's hands. It's like a real, it um, it, it really um, sends a message of distrust. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's like this. Um, you guys can't. We can't trust each other. Right. Uh, the government, whether it's Congress or the executive branch, since everyone is so untrustworthy, all your neighbors are out to get you. We have to take care of it. Right. We'll make sure you guys are equalized. We'll make yeah. sure that don't trust your neighbors. Don't trust the people in your community. We will take care of it. So that message is coming from the left, which I think cuts against this idea of human cooperation and individualism and liberty yeah. that that was there in past generations. And and there's been this backlash then on the right that is a, a stronger form of nationalism even that says, look, the left is not content with um, just different communities trying different things. If we try to play a, a you know play a game where um, we keep pushing for decentralization or federalism or whatever, we're just going to lose. That's what the right. right is increasingly thinking. So they say anyone who's not um, going into all-out you know war. Not I don't mean in the armed sense, but right. in the like you know. Um, political sense going into the all-out war against the Democrats and to the, the mattresses. Yeah, you have to go all out against them, and that means controlling things at the top. Yeah. That means nationalism. That means a strong um, president, a strong um, national party that's going to control everything, 
And it actually means a disillusion of the idea of communities and decentralization. So right. so I think like if there's a narrative that I would love to see, it's it's a return um, and an emphasis that in the in the modern world where we have so much technology, where we have so much ability to um, to reach each other and to right wrongs like mm-hmm. we have the we have the tools to right a lot of wrongs just through our social discourse mm-hmm. just by going online and saying like this person did the wrong thing or this person to to communicate with each other directly without having some kind of you know government standing there yeah. telling us what's right and what's wrong that in this era more than ever and with a country that's more diverse than ever uh, we should really be emphasizing decentralization and the idea of human co- cooperation and the beauty of it. Yeah, and, you know, um, it w- and hu- humility, I think, is an important aspect of this. Like it was real. It, yeah, the American experiment, I think, is about humility. Hmm. I, you know, it was really striking in 2016, which seems like you know a thousand years ago in a way. But both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump would stress that the system was broken. You know, they would say that. I mean, that phrase, the system is broken, you know, and that it wasn't, you know, if you're a Democrat, the system is broken and it's not delivering for certain types of people. For If you're the right, you know, the system has been infiltrated by, you know, leftists and this and that and the system isn't working and you can't trust anybody, you can't trust anything. And it leads to a really awful, you know, kind of day-to-day life because you're constantly feeling like you're getting ripped off or you're threatened if you... If you're not careful, you know, everything's going to be taken away from you. Um, and, yeah, trying to get back to something that is a more positive vision of, a, I don't know, an open-ended construction of, you know, of an America that is growing and changing, but also, you know, to meet the, the times, but also has, you know, some kind of continuity and, and core principles that are, that are positive and uplifting. Well, we we learn through freedom and diversity. You know, like yeah. the idea, the the idea of diversity and freedom and decentralization is really about maximizing human cooperation. Mm-hmm. It's about maximizing our ability to work together and to use all of our talents and skills, you know, to to the maximum. Um, and what you have from from the two old parties again is. This idea that no, no, you guys cannot do that stuff. We're going to decide at the top how you're going to live your lives. Um, you know, we we can't trust the Democrats to allow us, uh, you know, autonomy and freedom. So we, the Republicans, will control it all at the top, and we'll fight back uh, using the same exact tools and powers that they're using. And I think that's all just. Uh, uh, a way to go downhill and mm-hmm. and destroy liberty for everyone in the country. So here, uh, Adam, uh, you know, please uh, tell me to shut up. It's it's your show. But another question I had for you was, you know, talking about the old parties. Um, you know, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have sorted over the decades into you know basically a liberal party and a conservative party. They're not as different as they want to believe, but you know they're distinct. And as you were suggesting before. They represent smaller and smaller portions of America because kind of the the coalitions that they, you know, emerge to kind of represent. And in the most recent iteration of kind of, you know, the party meeting, maybe in the 80s or something like that, what it meant to be a Democrat and a Republican, that world is over and they represent fewer and fewer people. And when you look at I'm a big fan of Morris Fiorina, he's a political scientist at Stanford who writes about uh, what he calls unstable majorities that 
neither party has enough votes to kind of sustain themselves more th- than through more than a couple of election cycles. And you know, the whole 20th century, we've seen that where mm-hmm. control of the House or the Senate or the White House flips two, four, six, every two, four or six years. And yet Americans agree with supermajorities basically on a lot of stuff like, you know, that immigration is good for the country, that free trade is good, uh, that, you know, marijuana should be legalized, that gay marriage is okay. Um, you know, that business is, or government's trying to do too many things. But there's no party that actually allows those agreements to be voted on uh, because par- some of them are in the Republican, some are in the Democrat, and then you can't mix it. Do you see um, a kind of reset of either of the parties, like where they shift identity? This happens every once in a while, you know, in the late 19th century. The Grover Cleveland Democratic Party was pretty similar to a kind of Reaganite or Goldwaterite party. Um, you know, do you, do you think either of them is going to change, or do you think the Libertarian Party can actually kind of, or something else can kind of grow into the space that's of, of you know consensus? Um, you know, that's just been abdicated by the major parties. I, I don't see them shifting uh, again for. A significant period of time, you know, parties are going to change over time. Right. You, you look at a 20 year period, the parties will quite often change, yeah. sometimes significantly or 25 years or 30 years. Um, what's happened to the Democratic Party is it's really moved away from liberalism um, in certainly in the classical sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not much that's liberal about it anymore. Um, it's moved toward, I guess, what it calls progressivism, whether it's progressive or not is is another yeah. matter. But it's it's maybe more appropriately called progressivism this, these days or, or some kind of, um, you know, some form of socialism. Right. Um, yeah, it's really hostile to markets as a generator of wealth and a distributor of wealth for sure. Yeah, I think that this distinction between equity and equality is hmm. really the big one. Yeah. Um, they they incre- increasingly use the word equity, and really it's just another way to describe socialism or central planning or um, distrust of markets. You know, right. they just what what they're really saying is the government has to do more than just be, um, you know, equal in its treatment of people before mm-hmm. the law. In other words, like when when two people come before the law, we have to do more than just say these people are are going to be treated equally under the law. The government has to actually make them equal right. in their outcomes. And that's just another way of talking about socialism, but it's just in another it's in another guise. So yeah. um, so you have that on the left. And I think that's a significant shift from the more liberal form of um, Democratic Party that right. existed maybe several decades ago, yeah. where they really did believe in things like equality before the law, um, where you had groups like ACLU that could be counted on more consistently mm-hmm. to uphold classical liberal ideals. Um, there's been a shift away from that kind of thing. And on the right, I don't know that you can really call it conservatism in the sense of um, the conservatism that existed certainly in, the, in decades past, where it was really it used to be what was being conserved was a, a form of classical liberalism. And maybe different, maybe slightly different aspects of classical liberalism than what the left was um, was in favor of, but certainly conserving a lot of the ideals 
that um, Republicans thought this made this country great. There's been a move away from that, a strong move yeah. away from that, toward nationalism, populism, um, even some forms of authoritarianism. And I think that is that's really dangerous. And I don't think either of these parties is going to shift back to classical liberalism anytime soon. So there is an opportunity for a um, libertarian party right now to take the reins and say, we are the party of classical liberalism. We are the party of tolerance and human cooperation and diversity and free expression. And for, for people who care about those things, come into our party, come join us. We believe in markets. We believe in ideas. Um, you know, and and I think there is an opening right now, and um, I'm trying to be a part of that to to make it happen in the years ahead. Uh, there is a, looks like there's a caller. If you want to go, oh, to let's a take caller. a caller. Yeah. yeah. Mateo. Hey guys, uh, uh, I I never got it straight. Is it Amash or Amash? Amash. Amash. So, uh, yeah, I was, a, I was a fan of some aspects of your Twitter persona. I kind of felt like you left Congress when you were maybe a little too frustrated with the Zionist death grip on American foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you probably don't want to say I wouldn't, that that's the case. No, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I in public know. you would not agree with that. I don't agree with it privately either. Okay. Yeah. I, and I want to uh, – <laughs> so I, I have I – know, I know your background a little. I know you're from Michigan and – um, I know you're a very committed libertarian and probably like when you were in Congress, you might have been one of the smartest four or five Republicans in the House. That's not saying that much. That's like being, you know, one of the shortest people on an NBA team. But uh, anyways, you I are wanna, really working the crowd. With that. I want to uh, I want you to respond to three things that I think are particular failures of libertarianism in your region, in the Great Lakes region. Number one is there was no counter voice to the soybean welfare that went to all those farmers, more or less in that region, Indiana, you know, more than Michigan, maybe Ohio, $30 billion given away to buy votes in swing states. There was no deficit hawk response to that from the GOP. Number two, Michigan, as of uh, a month ago, was possibly the worst response to COVID in terms of anti-masking and anti-vax sentiment turning into a huge pile of dead bodies that is still about 160, 170 stiffs every day. In Michigan, that's a failure of libertarian culture, I think. And number three is the police riot slash trucker riot happening right now, shutting down like five percent of the Michigan economy because of Ottawa libertarians that somehow got brainworms from part of your ideology. So, if you want to respond to any of those three, I'd appreciate hearing it. All right, uh, thanks, uh, Matteo. So, yeah, I mean, I don't. Um, run Michigan and certainly libertarians I don't think uh, are running Michigan right now so uh, to blame it on libertarians is I think pretty silly Um, as for uh, you know the soybean or farmer welfare that's something I've always stood against I've been against um, subsidies from the very beginning I've talked about that many times I've tweeted about it many times Um, libertarians have certainly spoken out against that stuff Uh, Republicans haven't by and large and either of Democrats so um, you know, that's, I think, on them. It's not, it's not really on the, on the libertarians. Um, as for COVID restrictions in our state, I think our state did a terrible job in so many ways. But actually, uh, the governor at some point, I think, recognized that her polling was really bad on this issue and shifted away. So I don't think in the past several months we've been as bad as many other states. Um, 
I, I can certainly go around um, the Grand Rapids area and live my life uh, in a freer way than people in a lot of other states throughout the country um, when it comes to COVID restrictions. So, yeah, it's bad. I think the response by the governor was terrible. I've spoken about that. Um, but if you're just talking about in comparison to other states, I don't think it's um, necessarily much worse at this point in the past several months than than other states. And as for the um, the trucker situation in Ottawa, I don't know how to how anyone would pin that on libertarians. Um, like the the idea that uh, libertarians are at fault for um, Ottawa's policies or you know or anything else. So um, you know, I can't Can speak you? for I can't speak for Canadian libertarians. Yeah. I don't know what's going on over there in terms of that. Uh, segment of the population, but I don't think it's because of Canadian libertarians um, not taking a stand. Do you think on the uh, the question of COVID restrictions and stuff, and you know, like uh, Gavin Newsom and a bunch of other kind of blue state uh, governors have announced, okay, we're, you know, we're basically done with restrictions and things like that. Um, do you think that's a sign that we are, regardless of, you know, upticks and things like that, that we're going to move into a phase where, you know, they're trying to get back to normal, whether anybody admits, you know, what they were doing before that or anything. I, I think these guys don't know what they're doing at all. I, yeah. I, I think they basically just uh, fly by the seat of their pants. Hmm. Um, whatever comes up um, that they think benefits them politically is what they say. There are a lot of governors and states who felt like they had to do something because if they don't do something, it looks like they're taking no action. Um, so they would take actions that actually were, totally counter to any of the um, scientific knowledge we had mm-hmm. um, or counter to logic. Uh, Michigan had this early on where like the governor was deciding, you know, how we were going to line up outside of stores and which aisles we could shop from within a store. Like all of that stuff is totally absurd yeah. and, um, and also likely to increase the chances of catching COVID. So, um, there was there was all sorts of nonsense going on, uh, and they're, they'll continue to do it. These governors will continue to just um, pretend like they are doing something because it wins them some political points with a certain segment of the population. And I actually think that there is a bit of a mental health crisis that has come about as a result of what these governors have done and what, um, what the federal government has done, too, to a great extent, where... People are overestimating now the dangers of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, certainly there has been a horrific death toll, um, especially among older populations. Right. But when you look at the, the population as a whole, um, people's lives have been upended for something that has a has an extremely high survival rate right. for the vast majority of Americans. Yeah. And, um, and especially post vaccine. I mean, it's like, right. especially you know, this, this is, yeah. Right. Especially at this time. And so I think, like, if you, you know, I've seen polling on this where you poll people about the dangers of COVID and it's widely overestimated what the dangers are. And it's easy to get caught up in, in looking at, you know, hospital emergency rooms and other c- scenarios where you have, you have people in difficult situations right. and you have some, um, some situations that are, that are crises like uh, within certain communities in terms of how they're um, handling it or their ability to handle patients and other things. And I think it's easy to think, well, the whole world is like turned upside down and we can't, um, if we don't all like wear masks constantly Mm -hmm. and, you know, totally rearrange our lives, 
how are we going to survive it? I mean, yeah. there's that mentality out there, and I think that's a really dangerous thing. I actually think that if if you look at times before social media, it is possible that we've had similar sorts of viruses come through pre-social media that actually just weren't that well accounted for. You know, you didn't have the same kind of, like, um, uh, you know, communication being dispersed where people are, oh, this community is getting sick and it's passing through social media. You, you'll remember, Nick, um, even more than I do, when, when we were young, you had to wait till like, the next day to get the newspaper to, to read a lot of the stories. Right. Or if there were, was breaking news, it was pretty rare that you'd yeah. hear anything of, of big importance from other communities. Like, you'd mm-hmm. have, like, you'd have your local news that played a couple times a day. And then, right. like, in terms of national news, um, you were lucky if you heard much of anything. Right. So this kind of knowledge and information didn't really spread. So it's possible we've had other situations like this, and we just didn't even know it. People just said, oh, like it's a bad flu, and people are sick, and and then it passed through the population, and we moved on. Instead, it's become sort of a mental health crisis for a lot of Americans. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, do you find among kind of movement libertarians, uh, I've been observing this, where People have gone from being anti-mandate, anti-vaccine mandate, anti-mass mandate, to being kind of anti-science or anti-vaccine. Um, yeah. And I, you know, this also worries me, you know, and this is, you know, a conversation within or among libertarians that um, people, you know, and I, you know, it may be that libertarians aren't unique in this, but there does seem to be an urge to go to the extreme position or to do the reductio ad absurdum of almost everything, you know, going back to the question of like, you start out as a libertarian and you end up as an anarchist. Um, and I kind of feel that way with some of the vaccine stuff. And it's a, it's a little bit troubling to me. Yeah, I think I see more and more of that. And um, I, I want to relate it to something else, which I was going to talk to you about, which is audience capture. And I think that is happening um, tremendously where, where members of Congress, especially or public figures, um, including people uh, in the news media, are looking at social media, and when they say something, they're getting likes and retweets, and it is sort of like um, taking a drug for a lot of them, yeah. where it's like it's pumping them up, they're getting mm-hmm. excited by it, um, and when they say the right things, they get the right responses. Mm-hmm. And what's happened to a lot of people is the more extreme the thing they say, the better the response they're getting. Right. Because the algorithm, whether it's Twitter or some other social media, is showing it to the people who are going to be the most active. When the right. people who are going to be most active are the people who tend to have very strong opinions on things. Right. right? Those are the ones who are hitting like and retweet the most. They're the ones who have extremely strong opinions. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of um, I noticed this a lot of my colleagues where they started to believe that Twitter was real life, um, Twitter was what the community thought, and if they tweet something and they get a big hit on it, um, they tweet, they take it to the next step and get a bigger hit. And now I see some of my colleagues who every day, it's like they want to tweet something slightly more extreme than what they tweeted yeah. the day before because it gets them the big hit. And then if they tweet something more modest, they actually get attacked and get criticized right. because their audience now is a more extreme audience. So, yeah. like, that audience is no longer going to accept um, your more modest proposal or your more right. modest statement. 
And so, like, it just, it has a way of just, like, ratcheting up until yeah. finally you've, you've reached the edges. And it's happening both on the left and the right. Right. With the left increasingly taking, like, wild positions on um, masking or uh, mandates, and the right taking also wild positions, but in a different right. direction. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a, I think that's a huge problem. Hmm. Do you see any way to moderate that? Um, no, I don't. I don't know yeah. how you resolve it. Yeah. I mean, I get this all the time because um, you, you see some of that audience capture in my own um, Twitter account because, or an attempt at audience capture, and you can see how people fall into it because what ends up happening, because there are a lot of people who follow me, um, maybe like, you know, I don't know what percentage of, of the following, but maybe like a third even, who followed me during... The, the time when I was coming out against Donald Trump and um, I called for his impeachment and I, mm-hmm. I spoke about this on a more regular basis, there's some following that is from that that expects that kind of thing every day. And, um, and when I come out against Biden or criticize Nancy Pelosi, those people get angry and they are, they, you know, they get into the replies and they say, oh, you're just like the rest of them. I thought you were different, mm-hmm. etc. So it's easy to see how this kind of thing plays out on other people's um you know social media mm-hmm. i you know because of my principles i resist you know what twitter is trying to do through its algorithm i push right. back and i i stand for my principles regardless of how people are going to reply but there's a lot of people who don't have that kind of um you know fortitude they're not going to stand you know if, if they get pushed back they're going to rethink it and they're like oh, i'm not making a tweet like that again yeah. Um, next time I'm going with the crowd. Whatever crowd likes me, I'm going with that crowd. And I, I think it's um, I think it's dangerous. I'm not sure there's a good fix for right. it um, because you don't want you know Twitter, you know Twitter is uh, allowed to have an algorithm though you know the mm-hmm. way it's going to have an algorithm. You're not required to use Twitter. You know, one thing that's interesting doesn't is... mean. But, but I want to be clear from a libertarian perspective. Yeah. I can say I can both say that Twitter is allowed to have whatever algorithm it wants. Right. It's a market. I can choose to use yeah. Twitter or not use Twitter, and I can also say that the algor- algorithm is crap right. and that it it funnels people to the extremes in this way. Yeah. You know, and that is not inconsistent. Some people think it's inconsistent for libertarians right. to be like critical of whatever of the market specific produces. decisions within yeah, a market right. setting yeah no and that's ridiculous i mean that's that's like saying you you can use yelp you know to find restaurants but you can never leave a review or something, right you know, yeah. so, um you know one thing that i think is is positive um or a positive development is twitter you know twitter has flatter declining user average daily users facebook is starting to decline Partly because people kind of get tired of them, you know, and, and yeah. I think, you know, and it's amazing. Twitter is such, I mean, I spend a hell of a lot of time on there, but it's a relatively small platform. But when you're on it, you really think that's the limits of the, you know, known okay. and unknown universe. And it's like, you know, it's like most adults, uh, Americans don't have a Twitter account. Most of the people on Twitter never really post or even read it. So it's like, it's such a small you know, kind of community that, it, you know, seems to be super real. Yeah. So we've been going for a while. But okay. I wanted to, yeah. one more thing I want to talk sure. about, which is, are I can't remember, did you tell me you don't eat meat? No, I had been vegan. Uh, over the course of my life, I've eaten, uh, I've, I've followed 
uh, different kind of insane diets or extreme diets. And until January of 2021, I had been vegan or vegan-ish for about four or five years. And I did that um, for health reasons. Uh, basically, I wanted to lose weight. And I this was in 2016, I think. I was in, in Las Vegas. And I was interviewing Penn Jillette, who had just come out with a book about how he had lost 100 pounds in 90 days, or in 100 days, you know, doing a kind of extreme, uh, what's called a kind of nutritarian uh, vegan diet. And it's true, like if you... Didn't if he you, just eat potatoes? I heard that yeah, somewhere. Yeah, that, was, that was resetting. Like you do that for a couple of weeks or a month to re... Well, not in his case, not a month, but like for a couple of weeks, and it resets your kind of taste buds and everything. Um, yeah, and I did that too, and it was kind of great. I mean, potatoes, like boiled or steamed potatoes, I mean, they're delicious or, you know, fried as long as you're not putting them in, uh, you know, in animal fat or something. But like if you eat a true vegan diet, no animal products, you can eat pretty much anything you want and you just don't get the calories, you know, in order to gain weight. And, it, you know, it worked for me. Um, I did lose weight and like all of my blood work and stuff got better. And then after about four and a half or five years, it wasn't working anymore. I didn't like the diet. I had started after a certain point. I like seafood a lot because um, I grew up near the ocean, and uh, you know that's an inheritance of my mother. I think more than anything, uh, so I would eat seafood. But um, yeah, it was fun. And I, over the years, I've done extreme diets. Back in the uh, '80s, I guess I did a macrobiotic diet, which is a kind of weird invented diet that pretends to be like an ancient Japanese thing, and where. All foods have the property of either yin or yang, of expansion or contraction, and the perfect diet is one where everything is balanced. And it's it's made up, but I like those kinds of insane stories. And uh, you know, macrobiotics was you know it it it, it structures what you can eat, you know, and it it makes it reduces your choices, so you kind of in a weird way have more freedom to just get on with things. And then at another point in the early 2000s, I did a really intense version of the Atkins diet, which is essentially like a ketogenic or low-carb diet. And I've gone back to that more recently. Um, and uh, so I like extreme diets. You know, it's like I like extreme things, really. You know, I, I guess my politics, by some people's counts, are extreme. I mean, I feel like, especially in the libertarian movement, I feel very moderate or centrist. But yeah, I, I just, like... I I, I do a high protein diet. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I'm not really into the low carb thing. I'm doing. Yeah. I'm doing sort of the, in some ways the uh, very different from keto, which is um, high protein, low fat. Right. And, right. And you know, I accept the carbs too. Like, but yeah. Um, I had a piece of bread today, so I feel kind of, you know, out of it. But uh, yeah, I try. The, the carbs give you energy, though. Uh, they do. Yeah. You know. But if you eat. Uh, you know, like most things give you energy, I find. So, you know, and that's also what Adderall is for. So, you know. So, you, so it, the the vegan diet wasn't over ethics, right? No, it was not. It was really I wanted to lose weight and I wanted to, um, you know, kind of see if it would yeah. help, you know, my blood work. Now, don't you I, think humans are going to move away from moving from uh, eating meat? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think and for, so. for ethical yeah. reasons? Yeah, or, you know, it's, you know, this whole kind of like Peter Singer, the, uh, you know, controversial philosopher, but like the expanding circle of rights and, you know, the, the course of kind of human history is to see more and more things around us as being like us and having, if not not equal rights, but a dignity that we should respect. And, 
you know, I think as non-meat, uh, you know, non-animal product meats become more available and are better both in tasting and in terms of delivering the, you know, the nutrition we want, I think we'll get there. Uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, also talks a lot about how, like, you know, it's fun to kind of think about stuff that maybe in your parents' life was completely acceptable and now it's like that is so barbaric. What's that going to be, you know, 50 years in the future? And he thinks pets will be like that. You know, along with animal, eating animals will be fading, but the idea that we had pets will be seen as some kind of barbarism that, you know, is yeah, I'm know, not, people. I'm not sure about the pets thing because I think, yeah. like, there's a there's a relationship between dogs and, as an example, and yeah. humans that is maybe mutually beneficial. I mean, oh, it totally sure is, that, and, like, and so they evolved sure. together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, but I then don't know that you, can, yeah. you can't like really unless you're going to wipe yeah. out like whole dog species. They're not going to live, you know. This is my, uh, yeah. my Havanese dog is not going to just live in the wild. Right. It's, yeah. You know, it's not going to yeah. make it. So, um, so I don't know how how to do it, but yeah, but I do think that with um, eating meat that um, in the future a lot of us are going to be, you know, canceled or whatever mm-hmm. for having eaten meat. In other words, there will be a time... Oh, that'll when, be interesting. So it'll be yeah, like Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan has been canceled be because... He, yeah, Joe Rogan has been canceled for saying the N-word in the past and just wait until they see him, like, take on a plate of ribs or something, right? I think there will be something like yeah. that. Yeah, like where people, like, um, you know, some somebody's statue will be torn down because they ate meat. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think that will, oh, people will, will push the Oscar, uh, you know, Oscar Meyer Wienermobile off a bridge or something. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Because I, light it on I, fire. It's everything do, that was wrong. I do think about that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I do eat meat, but, um, but I, uh, I think about the ethics of it increasingly and it does. What, it what, does what me. is the ethical? Yeah. What's the ethical consideration there that, animals uh, you know that yeah, that are it, they're grown uh, they are used right. as means to uh our ends rather than yeah, ends you're, themselves taking li- you're taking living beings and you're often uh, yeah. putting them in environments where they're just raised for the purpose of being you know consumed by humans um i, I don't know i think that there there are ethical issues yeah. to that that um that we'll all have to reckon I, you know, there's a, there's a great, this was part of my uh, doctoral dissertation. There's a really good book from the early 19th century called Hobomach by a, a woman writer named Lydia Maria Child who was very popular in her day and then kind of got disappeared and then was uh, kind of rediscovered uh, in like the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, you know, and this, by the way, is one of the reasons why I like canon revisionism in literature. Um, you know, a lot of libertarians kind of are conservative where they think, OK, well, you know, there's five great works and that's all you should study. And it's really interesting to me that, you know, when you rummage through stuff that was written in the past, it might even have been very popular, or critically acclaimed, but then it goes out of fashion for various reasons and you discover it. But Hobomach by uh, Literary Maria Child is is a really fantastic novel. And it starts it's about Puritans in Salem. Uh, you know, pilgrims of uh, uh, Puritans in Salem, Massachusetts. And, you know, it was written in like the 1820s, I guess, or 1840s. So, you know, it's looking back and it's talking about how we, the the narrator at the beginning is saying like, you know, we look back on, you know, our Puritan or our pilgrim forefathers as, you know, just ridiculous and many of their values and things like that. But 
you know, we will be looked upon like that by people, you know, by our ancestors. And it's got this great set about that. And I, you know, I, I think that goes to your point about humility, you know, like recognizing that any, wherever we are, we are in process to some place that's very different. And we should be, you know, kind of empathetic and understanding to people who came before us because we're going to be those people in yeah. the future. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, um, I guess I misled you. I got one more question. I want okay. to ask you about. I mean, we've been going on for a while. Yeah, no, I'm getting punch drunk here, but I, but um, uh, yeah, bring did, it on. Did you? Because I saw on Wikipedia. Um, yeah, and it could be wrong, but I saw on Wikipedia. Did you write? Did you ghostwrite for Alyssa Milano? Yes. Yes. Machine? That was yes. That's absolutely it, true. Wikipedia yeah. says citation needed, so I yeah. I uh, you know why why a citation is needed? Although I don't know that this would have counted, but the interview that that was based on uh, is on a defunct website. So at some point it disappeared. But oh, yeah, I when, so I graduated college in 1985, and then I went back to grad school in '88. But I think that the Alyssa Milano deal was in '86. But I worked for a company in New York in Manhattan that made uh, that that uh, published. Movie magazines, that it was the company that published Modern Screen, which was like a magazine founded in like 1930. Uh, you know, it was kind of like a movie fanzine. They did um, uh, music magazines. There was a, they published Metal Edge, which was like a heavy metal magazine, a bunch of soap opera things, and teen magazines. And I worked on one called Teen Machine. And we had a deal where, you know, we did an advice column for Alyssa Milano. She never read the questions. She never read the answers. But I was Alyssa Milano for a year. So you didn't interact with her. It was no, I like never have. No. Flat out like, um, yeah. you're going to do it. Uh, it's uh, like John F. Kennedy. You know, John F. Kennedy didn't write Profiles in Courage. How do, you, yeah. how do you do that as a, as like a celebrity? At the time, she was probably uh, pretty She was on Who's right? the Boss. She was on Who's yeah. the Boss. So she was a fairly well-known, you know, uh, kid star. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, and... and Mostly girls and the occasional convict would write in with, you know, questions about what to do in a given situation. And I would, you know, I would wing it. Um, I used to say that I, you know, really uh, take responsibility for that brief uptick in, you know, teen pregnancy in 1986. Uh, But uh, it was interesting. And, you know, one of the things that was strange about it beyond all everything about it is strange. Um, The, you know, um, you know, some of the people who wrote in, it's, uh, you know, there's, I don't know if you've ever read the novel Miss Lonely Hearts by uh, Nathaniel no. West, but it's about a guy who is a man who writes an advice column, uh, the Miss Lonely Hearts column, where people write in about how awful their lives are. And it was, it was kind of sobering. I mean, it was fun and we had fun with it. And I would pick, you know, funny questions and sometimes invent things. But, um, you know, there's a lot of pain in the world and a lot of isolation. And, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, it, it was an entree into that world. And, it, it, you know, it probably made me a better person because I realized that yeah. there's a lot of people out there who, you know, who just need somebody to listen or somebody to, you know, pay attention to them. Yeah. And you never had to talk to her about any of it. You just like, no. Yeah, no. And then we had an acrimonious break. I forget why exactly, but she severed the relationship. Like you wrote nothing, the wrong thing? And she yeah, no, it had nothing to do with that. I think it was that we uh, published a couple of pictures of her from a photo shoot 
where she looked, you know, kind of groggy. Like, we're just poor quality photos, and she got pissed. But she, of course, is, you know, like a, a giant kind of woke uh, monster now, right? Yeah, I don't so. know if I would call her a monster, but, you know, she's, yeah. she's definitely on, you know, she's she's public about her views. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, which is, I guess, is good. Um, I don't, uh, well, the one thing, my mother was not a particularly wise person, but she always was like, only an idiot takes advice from, you know, celebrities, from actors, from, you know, athletes, et cetera. And, you know, I think that's true. It's a, it's a good default setting. I mean, there are people who are really wise and smart and expert in things. And I do, uh, you know, you got to give her credit for owning her positions. She really yeah. is very public Absolutely. about things. Yeah, and I think at times she's been willing to, um, you know, challenge people and take a stand and debate people and all that. So, yeah. you know, props to people who do that stuff. Um, for even sure. If I, even if I disagree with them. Yeah. Well, I, I could talk to, to you and talk with you all day, but... Um, this has been uh, extremely we, we had, enjoyable. If, if yeah. we keep going, the problem is um, no other guests will agree to come on this yes. um, this podcast. Okay. Like, I want to... Uh, I'm noting, I mean, there's so like 30... Guests, yeah, there's 33 live people on this that have been with us like basically the whole time. Yeah. So that's like so they are. Future guests should know it doesn't have to yeah. go three hours, but no. um, but with Nick, it's it's going to go this long because uh, yeah, we, this, we I think it. is like the longest that I've I've talked on uh, you know in public. So yeah, uh, I could go thank like you. five. I could go five or six. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, you well, you were you. I I guess you never you got know, to do a, a filibuster, halls, but yeah, yeah, some of those town halls <laughs> I had to do went on for quite a while. So. And they were yeah. all uh, they were all questions like the Mateo um, qu- set of questions. So, sure. Like, you know, just, yeah, yeah. You know, hours of that. So not really questions, kind of yeah. uh, insinuation. Like, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, anyways, thanks, thanks, Nick, uh, for being on. Thanks for everyone um, who called in and and everyone uh, listening right now. Really, so. my absolute honor and pleasure and privilege. So, uh, thank you so much, Justin, and uh, you know, uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. The world needs you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. See you, everyone. Bye.